Some folks were really disappointed that we didn't wear those sexy bathing suits that the artists put together on the poster. But we will strike a pose, okay? It's something like that. Looked like uh, we had our backs thrown out or something in that uh, pose, but... Those bodies were photoshopped, just so you know. It wasn't the real thing. So this is always fun. This is a blast. I think some of the best learning takes place in, uh, in this kind of environment. So really encourage you uh, to uh, send in the questions uh, that you have. We get to as many as possible, average about 10. Uh, if we can hit to keep it to four minutes apiece. Paul gets a little long-winded sometimes. You've got to pull him back. But, well, well, <laughs> no one believes that. But uh, we'll get through as many. And, you know, I think Vanessa mentioned this, but uh, we don't repeat questions. Uh, so... Um, uh, I encourage you to get online and listen to the other two services to see what questions other folks ask because there's been some good questions. Uh, so, and I'm sure this one's going to take the cake. So let's go for it. Your first question for tonight is, if prayer is so powerful, why doesn't it work so often? Prayer is so powerful. You've been preaching that it's pretty yeah, I've been talking enough on this. It's your turn to, to go. <laughs> and I, I, that's said all I can say. I don't it's a good question. I'll, I'll good say question. that. If prayer is so powerful, why does it not seem to work? Why does it not work so well? Well, um, lack of faith, I suspect, because all my prayers are answered. <laughs> yeah, you're yeah. a sinner, admit it. Yeah. Ongoing willful sin in someone's life. <laughs> that must have... You know, there, 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 there are folks who in... in um, in our culture, Christian folks who teach that there's really a limited number of reasons that if, if, if you pray for something, a petitionary prayer request to God, and if it doesn't happen, that there's like one or two reasons why that isn't. And in, really, those reasons often end up being, well, there's sin, you know, active sin in your life, or you asked with, with a lack of faith. And while the scriptures certainly do say that, that praying with faith is an important um, Dimension, an important variable in prayer, uh, and that, that active willful sin in one's life is, is, can hamper prayers. I mean, in um, what, James chapter 5, uh, James is writing and he says, The prayers of a righteous person, one who's rightly related to God and others, avail much, which would lead one to suggest that someone who's in broken relationships that that could hamper your prayers. In fact, in 1 Peter 3, Peter says that husbands, be careful how you treat your wives, knowing that mistreating them could actually hamper your prayers. So yes, those are things to consider, but they're not the only things to consider. Um, As you look through Scripture and notice all the times that someone prays for something and yet it doesn't happen, uh, the, the reasons there are multiple. Sometimes they have to do with God and His will, God and His timing, Sometimes they do have to do with human variables, like um, things we've just two we've mentioned, and things like how many people are praying and these sorts of things. Sometimes they have nothing to do with God or the human being factor, but rather uh, Daniel 10, you think of, Daniel's praying, and God actually answers his prayer, but nothing happens. And Daniel finds out three weeks later that even though God answered his prayer on the very day he prayed, that God's answer was to send an angel to come and help Daniel, but that angel was literally stopped in the spiritual realm because of a demonic influence. And so the demonic, angelic warfare uh, that you and I know very little about in terms of actually what happens on a day-to-day basis, we know that it's happening, but we don't know quite what's always happening. That too can be a factor in, in whether a prayer is answered and when it's answered and these sorts of things. So it's, it's, it's very powerful. 
But our say-so in it is only one of the many say-sos involved in, in all that. I think that's where I would go with, with that. Yeah, I, I talk about, I have a whole chapter on this in uh, the book, Is God to Blame? Uh, where we have to remember how little we know about anything. Because we really do know very, very little. Our, our perspective on reality is so myopic, so narrow. Uh, it's, in fact, our, my small group was talking about this last night. We were talking about how there's a particular time when we were in Haiti, and there was all of a sudden all this demonic stuff broke out. I mean, it was bizarre. And we were kind of remembering it. It happened about 12, 13 years ago. But it, we, it, all, it just exploded. And there's other times where, you know, the, there's all sorts of kingdom of God stuff that just happens, and prayers are all answered all over the place. And uh, one person asked the question, why? What was it about that particular time in Haiti that caused that demonic thing to happen? And other times, all this God stuff happens. Why? And um, as we talked about it, 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 the picture I got in my mind, I shared with them, is that we're, we're kind of in a position, it's like a, we're little ants on the ground. Imagine ants who, uh, you know, there's all these humans walking around up here, but they don't know anything about human society. You know, all they know is, you know, what, what, what hits the ground. And once in a while they get stepped on, and other times they don't. And they don't, never know why they get stepped on when they do and why they don't when they don't. Because they don't see the, the goings-ons of human beings and every other thing that could possibly step on them. Well, we're kind of like that. There's a vast society of angelic beings all around us. Spiritual warfare going on all around us. Um, and we know hardly anything about that. Um, and yet that affects what comes to pass uh, down here. Um, and so we just have to accept that, that it, it's, it's really unanswerable to say, why does this prayer get answered? Why doesn't that get answered? We, can, we have to trust. I believe we have to trust that it's always going to make a difference. And we take that on faith because the word tells us that. Uh, but as to why, sometimes you see an immediate response to it. You, what you pray for comes to pass. And other times you don't see any of it. Uh, it's impossible to answer. Um, but that's no different than anything else in life because if you think about it, every particular fact, every particular fact in the world, if you ask two questions about it as to why it's there, just the way it is, uh, you'd, you'd quickly see that you have to, you'd have to know the entire history of the universe, every decision ever made in the universe, to be able to exhaustively explain why any fact is the way it is. It, 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 there's, a, there's a sea of complexity around us uh, all the time. We just get used to it, so we stop, you know, we, we, we stop investigating that. But uh, in the I, you know, you see this throughout church history, too, where sometimes there's an outbringing of revivals happen, and, and it seems like every prayer is answered. Uh, and then there's other times of just a sheer oppression. And I think that's because it, it's, it just shows it's not an individual thing. It's not just about your faith or the faith of the three people you're praying for or whatever. Uh, there are systemic things going on around us. And I think sometimes it's like a cloud of darkness hangs over a people group. And man, praying is oppressive and it's hard and hardly anything gets answered. And then other times, for reasons that we never know, uh, we're able to push the cloud back and there's more rays from the kingdom of God that shine through and miracles happen all over the place. And invariably, then those close. Uh, you see that throughout history. There's a period of, of a kingdom explosion and then it closes. Then in another place at another time, there's a kingdom explosion and then it closes. Uh, so in the end, we, we, we have to just humbly say we don't know. What's really important though is that we don't blame God like Job's friends did and we don't blame people we don't, we don't blame God like Job did, and we don't blame other people like Job did. Uh, we you can't, can't, can't narrow it down. Uh, we have to realize the question's bigger than us. Yeah. And I just add, too, for a kind of a practical thing, uh, to, to, to realize there's lots of variables, and that we don't know most of them, could lead some people to say, well, then, gosh, if there's all this stuff beyond our control, why even bother praying? Because I, I might spend tons of time and energy and prayer, and then it still might not happen. 
Well, true, but when you think about all of our life, you know, not just spiritual things, but anything, only so much of our lives do we have responsibility for. And we are called to be responsible for the, the sphere that we do have say-so over and, and to let the rest go. Um, I think of Jesus. I mean, Jesus knew this. Jesus operated with this principle. As, as a human being, when he was on this planet, he had the same constraints. There's a, a, a verse in Mark that we don't often talk about. Mark uh, chapter 6, verse 1 and following, where Jesus came into his hometown and, pr- and prayed for the healing of some people. And it says, no one got healed that day. And at the end of that, says, uh, that passage says, for there was great l- lack of faith amongst his, his village people there. And so their lack of faith was a variable that, that actually hindered Jesus' own prayers. But Jesus knew that, and he, he didn't stop praying. In fact, Jesus always was faithful. Maybe that's the issue. When, it's not about being successful. It's about being faithful to, to what God calls us to. Good. Thanks. That was good. Just don't forget, we want to get through as many questions as possible. <laughs> that was really good, though. It was a great answer. <laughs> We are rebuked. She gives us an A minus on that one. <laughs> You're doing great. Okay, Greg and Paul. If I am married but have trouble staying faithful to my wife because I struggle with infidelity, am I able to worship in your church and not be judged? As long as I am sorry, will God accommodate my lifestyle as long as I'm working on it? Wow. <laughs> Ooh. Who asked that question? <laughs> Some wife's thinking, it better not be you, Mary. <laughs> well, look, we, we uh, I mean, I, I hope it's okay for you to worship at Woodland Hills with your struggles, because uh, if it's not okay for you to worship with your struggles, uh, we all got to leave right now. Uh, we, we've, we've, we're all in process. We're all on the way. And, um, um, and so my quick answer is, yes, of course. I mean, it, it's... The reason why we come together, one of the reasons why we come together um, is because there's power in worship together and hearing the word that changes us. And it's precisely by staying engaged, staying in the game, uh, hearing the word, uh, that, that we, we're transformed, as well as being in community and doing ministry and everything else. Uh, and so that, that's why I think it's so important that we don't see attaining a certain level of holiness as the precondition for worshiping God or for praying or for being in the church. Because um, it's precisely doing those things that transforms us uh, into the image of Christ and to, and to take on more and more of his holiness. Uh, so, but of course, you're, you're, you're embraced here. Um, the only thing I'd add to that is this, that it, it's so important. God always meets us where we're at, absolutely, and works with us where we're at, absolutely. Uh, but it's very important that we don't use that as a uh, justification for um, going on in our sin. And that, you know, well, I'm working on it, but, you know, does God love me as I am? And the answer is, yes, he loves you as you are. But be very careful that, because our carnal nature can use anything good to use it for evil. It's like God uses everything evil for good. We do the opposite. And that can become a sort of like, I can't help it. I'm working on it. I'm doing my best. Oh, gosh, now I've got to go cheat again. Uh, but thankfully, God will love me anyways. Uh, it's, it's important that we take it very seriously, that there's a, God takes us where we're at, loves us where we're at. But he wants us to keep moving and keep growing and uh, put things in place. If you can't, if you're finding that your own relationship with God is not uh, doing, breaking the stronghold in your life, then maybe you need to get some, invite some friends in on that and, and uh, ask them to hold you accountable. 
and start thinking in practical terms what you can do to change this behavioral pattern. We went camping last weekend, and the ticks and mosquitoes were terrible. I hear you. If everything is created by God and has a purpose, what is up with the ticks and mosquitoes? <laughs> Does Satan have influence over them? Uh, yeah. <laughs> Amen. Amen. Yeah. Uh, it's true. I wow. just we found the biggest tick on my dog the other week. It was this thing was sucking blood. We think for about two weeks when we went on vacation. I'd never seen a tick so big. It was just nasty. You're gonna tell me that that is of God? Come on, I answered the last question, now it's your turn. <laughs> Go for it. The birds and the bats think that the mosquitoes are yeah, God, right? I mean, yeah, so um, it raises issues like what is the effect of the fall on the natural created order, right? I mean, um, we can, you know, I'm not, I don't know exactly what God's original plan was for ticks and, and uh, mosquitoes. Maybe they weren't part of the original plan. But, or maybe they weren't, but whatever maybe. they are now, uh, you know, Jesus, I think, you know, Greg has always said, look to Jesus to understand what humanity is supposed to be like, and then if you understand what Jesus thinks the world is supposed to be like, that's sort of how it's supposed to be like. And it seems that wherever Jesus went in his three years of ministry, um, he would come into the nat- where the natural order wasn't acting the way it should, and he would speak to it, right? So the winds are... Um, tossing about a, a ship that's about to drown people, and he rebukes the waves, actually the same word that's used to rebuke demons, and, and calms it. So, um, you know, uh, I think ultimately uh, ticks and mosquitoes and everything that's, that bugs people uh, is out of alignment. It's not in alignment with the way a harmonious relationship should be. I don't think ultimately in the kingdom of God that, well, put it this way, uh, Isaiah chapter 11 says that in the kingdom of God, when all things are made new, new heavens and new earth, that the lion will lay down with the lamb, and the child will pick up the cobra and will not be bit. Like, everything's in harmony, once again. I suspect then that we won't have to deal with mosquitoes come, no come the new heavens and new earth. It might be good to think about it, and I know this strikes people's odd the first time they hear it. Maybe it is odd, but, but uh, it seems to me it's very biblical. You know, in Genesis 3, it's, it says aspects of nature change because of the fall. You know, thorns, are, are those of God or not? Well... It says right there that it's because of the fall that there's going to be thorns and the ground's going to be hard to work and, and there's all these other things that happen to nature as a result of, of the fall. And I, you know, we can debate about how literal you want to take that or how symbolic, but um, Genesis 1 presents sort of God's ideal for creation. And there, all the animals are eating from the, the, the fruit of the, the trees. Uh, he says, I give you and all the animals uh, the vegetation to eat. He doesn't say you'll be eating one another. You don't find that happening until Genesis 9, where God then finally permits uh, them to, to eat, eat animals. Before that, it was simply the vegetation. And so I, I think it's consistent with God's character, the creator of all, that in his ideal, the whole creation would be free of violence. The, way, the reason right now that it's run on violence I, is, I think... Um, uh, because this, it's all under this curse. It's been corrupted. Even the natural laws of physics have been corrupted to some degree. Death is a very natural thing as, in terms of how we experience the world now, but the Bible tells us that Satan is the Lord of death, Hebrews 2.14. And so that tells me that, that everything here has been tainted. But I wouldn't think about it in terms of it's either God, of God or Satan, like ticks are all of Satan and, and butterflies are all of God. Uh, <laughs> rather, it, it, it's, it's, it, it's all been you know, uh, uh, corrupted. And um, uh, 
and, and only in the end are we going to see it all parsed out, you know, and then we'll see what it was supposed to originally be like. Now, that could also lead to all sorts of questions about how to integrate the, the Genesis story with the whole thing of science and the evolution and all that, but we don't have time to get into that right now. But there's ways of doing it, I'll just tell you that. There's, there's ways. There's ways. <laughs> there are ways. You just can't take it all literally. <laughs> all right. How can Jesus... <laughs> How can Jesus' death be considered a sacrifice? God gave his only son and then got him back. Well, I get, I, I, very good question. Um, I, don't, I don't think I've ever got that question before. So it's how, how is it a sacrifice since he got it back? He got him back. Um, I... I that would, the question presumes, it seems to me, that, that, that presumes that a sacrifice is only a sacrifice if it's irrevocable, if you never get it back. Uh, but I wouldn't, I, I wouldn't say that. Um, it seems like we, we sacrifice all the time uh, when it, it doesn't have that quality to it, we, we get it back. Uh, it was a sacrifice, I mean, try to enter into this, that Jesus on the cross, I mean, just him becoming a human being is a sacrifice in the sense that he had to set aside all of his divine prerogatives to take on our, our human limitations. And then on the cross, he enters into our sin and enters into our, 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 our curse. Uh, it becomes it, Paul says in Galatians 3. And, uh, and then because of that, experience this, this, this abandonment from the Father. That's why he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Uh, for, for God... To the, the, the God who is a perfect, his very essence, his very essence is the triune love, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And for God to experience separation from himself is, is to experience utter contradiction. Think about this. We experience pain when we are, are, when something's happening to us that contradicts our nature. Like if you're getting stabbed in the stomach, that's against your nature. You're not supposed to have a blade going into your stomach, and so it causes pain. Uh, or whenever we're undergoing things that are kind of, holding your breath is painful because it's, it's your nature is to breathe. Well, for God to enter into this state would have been the, mo- uh, the most extreme form of that, the most extreme pain imaginable. Uh, the, the, the pain of the Father and the Son in, in experience separation when their very essence is to be united uh, would have been uh, the, the, the greatest, most intense experience of pain we can imagine. Um, and that makes it a sacrifice. Uh, now, the fact that, that it, it, he was raised uh, on, on the next Sunday uh, and they're restored doesn't lessen the fact that they went through that, especially when you consider that they didn't have to. This was something they chose to do. God freely chose to uh, get, pour his whole being out, experience the thing that was most antithetical to his being, most opposite of his being. Uh, he did that for a race of people who wanted nothing to do with him, who crucified him. Uh, and that, that's what makes it, I think, uh, a sacrifice. Yeah, that works. I think it's, it's not unlike, um, you know, we could define agape love, uh, the kind of love that God calls us to is self-sacrificial, other-oriented love. And, um, you know, Paul, when he, Apostle Paul talks about the fact that the pain of this world isn't really even worthy to be compared to the glory and the beauty of what's coming in the next life. And yet, even though, in a sense, we all get it back, right? Whatever we give up here, we get back in the new heavens and the new earth with, with that glory. It's still sacrifice to live in love and give and pour out and bleed and die mm. for others in this world. So we know 
that, that there can be sacrifice even though we get it back. I think the same is, is true for God. In fact, that's the very point. I mean, it's, it's, the, whole, the whole point of it is that God gives his all, and then Jesus is raised on the third day, and it vindicates that uh, that way of living, self-sacrificial love, leads to life. Mm-hmm. And then what we're called to do is to be little examples of that. And that's why Jesus says, if you lose your life, you'll find it. So kingdom sacrifice, now, now I'm thinking about it, here's, it, you always get it back. I mean, it, it's wired into uh, things that, that, that when, you, when you die to yourself and pull yourself off for another, the whole message of the resurrection is, you may die now, you may not get it back now, but you will get it back. That, that way of living, that kind of love is victorious. And in fact, it's the only thing in this world that is victorious. Everything else that's inconsistent with that will someday be gone. But only what reflects the, the love of God, the, is in line with the character of God, it's the only thing that survives. And that's why we're called to, uh, in, in our redeemed state in Christ, to be cultivating that kind of lifestyle because that is what will survive. That lives forever. Everything else doesn't. It, it dies. Good. Thanks for that question. We now have an answer. I, well, we, we, it's good. You, as you think through this stuff, this is what I love about questions is that if you're wrestling with them, you'll, you'll you gain new insights. And, and it, yeah, it's, it's good. What does it mean for families to pray together? How do your families pray together, if at all? <laughs> pray well, together? Where'd you get that idea? <laughs> I'll share how our, our family does it. Um, we have, uh, I'd say, set times, more, more kind of regular almost like ritual times of praying together. And, of course, that's at meals and at bedtime. Well, we just know we will be praying together then. And then over and above that, we have, I'd say, more um, occasioned times of prayer. Uh, if whether someone in our family or someone outside our family that we know and love and are maybe ministering to, and uh, this sort of spontaneous moments of prayer. And so what it looks like is, and I, I've, I've um, 12 or 11 and 13-year-old boys and my wife Kelly, and we've talked together about the, the idea that what we're doing when we're praying is really, and really got this from Greg, is, is we're, we're aligning our spiritual say-so together towards either each other or someone outside of our realm for their blessing. And, uh, and so that's, um, yeah, that's how we do it. I, I, I think it's so important that um, you, you, make, you make times together and you do it in age-appropriate ways, uh, you know, for little, little kids. Uh, it's got to be short and simple, uh, but to to um, ha- have those times where you as a family are just uh, talking to God and to be cultivating principles there about how natural this is. This is no different than talking to our neighbor if they were over here or whatever. It's just that Jesus is in this room, and uh, in fact, kids are very concrete, so sometimes it helps to actually let them imagine Jesus sitting in the chair, and you just talk to Jesus, and you thank him for the meal, and you thank him for the day, and, and whatever. Um, I, 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 as I... I look at it now, I, I think I'm better with my grandkids than I was with my own kids. It's because I've had 25 years of learning in between. I, I would, uh, wish I could have done it over again. I, I would have done a few things differently with my own kids. Um, but with, with, with the grandkids, it's, it's so important to, I, I, we go out of our way to, even let the, as soon as they can talk, you empower them to pray at the table. Let them say the prayer. Or maybe take turns saying the prayer, but they're included. And, um, uh, man, that, that just sends a message that Almighty God is listening to you, you know, and when you get to, when you talk. And it, it's, I think, important that um, the, the prayer become a natural thing, so it's not a set-aside, awkward thing. It helps to make God a part of the regular conversation. 
The, the, the whole goal of the kingdom is, is to stop being compartmentalized, but rather to integrate it into the, your, the natural breathing, the natural flow of life. And so uh, try to make God talk a natural thing. Talk about you know, what God is doing and, and relate everything to God as much as possible. Starting when they're, they're old enough to talk and listen, just, just make it a, a natural sort of thing. One thing I wouldn't do is, um, see, if, if it's not a natural thing, but rather is something kind of imposed and, and it becomes regimented, um, it can really backfire. Like when, when I was being raised, there's nothing godly about my family at all. God wasn't part of our conversation. Uh, in fact, it was the opposite. We had warfare and it was nasty and hollering and ugliness. But on Wednesday night, we all had this time where we had to sit for, it was an hour on our knees, and it was my stepmother who regimented this, um, and we had to have this rosary, and we had to go through the thing, and, and it was torture, um, and it was so unnatural because it didn't relate to anything else we were doing. And so that has made us not like God very much, and certainly didn't make us look like our stepmother at all. Um, I, the more natural and flowing and loving and empowering it can be, the better, as opposed to this, here's what we need to do, because otherwise we're not good Christians. Operating out of a motive of guilt, out of a supposed to, is never a healthy way to do it. Uh, make it a natural part of your breathing. Yeah, other quick, real quick piece I'd add too is with with young, with young folks, with kids, um, to help them as quick as possible. Also realize that prayer isn't just talking at God, but it's also listening oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. to God. And so, one of the things we've been starting to do is is to take time just of silence for a minute or so before we start praying together as family, and just listen, uh, including listening to who would God have us pray for this evening. Uh, and so, there's always a, a dialogue uh, component with with. And one more thing, and that is the kids, this is really important. This is one of the things I would do a whole lot more of uh, if I had to do it over again. But you know, kids, they're still, the older you get, the less you trust your imagination. You don't rely on it. But actually, the imagination is the, the, our, our, our best tool to talking with God and to hearing from God. Uh, a friend of mine is doing this with, with her kids, and we're uh, bringing it with our grandkids, where you, you let them imagine Jesus. And uh, before you go to bed, maybe sometimes um, she, she does this elaborate thing. She lets the, the child hear from God, and then, you know, they, they go places with Jesus. And uh, God, Jesus shows them stuff, and all of that. And I think the Spirit of God is talking through that. Uh, and so uh, cultivate in your own life and then in the life of your kids the use of the imagination in prayer. And it makes it all concrete and, and tangible, powerful, and, and transforming. And just three more points. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Some Christians have a fascination with the state of Israel. Should we be supporting the state of Israel? What role does their state play in the future? Yeah, you're getting a lot of that now. It, it kind of comes and goes and you know, this ebb and flow. You know, there's a lot of folks very well-intentioned, um, but they, they, they take the, the pattern that you find in the Old Testament and certain promises that are there in the Old Testament uh, that, you know, every, every, everyone who blesses you will get blessed, uh, the Lord says to Abraham. And then they, they apply that on a national level. And then they try to advocate for uh, they, uh, America and others to just be pro-Israel uh, at all costs. And, and some go further and say that that whole land, uh, including Palestine, was given to them by divine right. And therefore, they uh, try to obstruct the peace process to, to divide it up into two states. 
Uh, no, it's all got to be to Israel. In fact, there's a petition that was going around about six, seven years ago, drove me crazy, where this one guy, well-known personality, was calling for Christians to sign this document to block the peace process because it shouldn't be a two-state solution. It should be all Israel's and unconditional and all that. Uh, I can give you 99 reasons why that is just misguided. But the one I'll share right now is, is this. When Jesus comes along, he introduces a kingdom that, I mean, everyone was trying to pull him in that nationalistic direction, and he wouldn't go there. And, and you know, they try to pull him into this kind of power over uh, game of, that, that the states play, and, and, you know, that's how the kingdoms of this world run. But he wouldn't go there. His kingdom is not of this world. It's not defined by nations. It's not defined by politics or governments or anything like that. His kingdom is altogether different. And we're ambassadors of that kingdom. So whatever you think about should happen over in Israel or not, and, and blah, 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 uh, don't bring Jesus into it because he's got nothing to do with it. That's the kind of thing that we should think through in terms of practical politics and all of that. Uh, and whenever we start confusing those categories, you're just asking for, for trouble. Um, those, those promises that were given were all conditional. When, when, they, when, when the nation didn't obey God, they lost those promises. Uh, and as I look at Israel today, I don't see them being the epitome of godliness. Uh, I, a, lot, a lot of them are, are, are complete unbelievers, even by just Jewish standards. So um, whatever was up there, I don't think it's going on now. And you certainly shouldn't base your pl- domestic policy and politics uh, on, on your interpretation of the Bible. And then you end up having peacemakers. We're called to be peacemakers, obstructing the peace process. What's wrong with this picture? There's my humble little <laughs> opinion. <laughs> About which I've got a certain amount of angst. <laughs> Did you have anything to add to it, Paul? Not a bit. Not a bit? All right. I have a friend, um, a Christian friend, who goes to a different church in town. When they found out that we sometimes have women preachers here at Woodland Hills, they told me that this was wrong because the Bible itself says that women shouldn't teach men. Is my friend right about this? Only if you don't let them wear jewelry and, uh, <laughs> or braid their hair. Is your friend right that um, there are the words in the Bible, um, women should not teach men? Those words are found in, in 1 Timothy 2, uh, two, yeah. 2, 11 and following. Um, but the question is, why did the Apostle Paul write that in 1 Timothy? Uh, and again, something very similar in 1 Corinthians 11. And is that sort of the end-all and be-all for the question of women's uh, Ability to be teachers and leaders in the church today. Uh, some people think that. Some people think that, you know, take, kind of take 1 Timothy 2, those few verses in 1 Corinthians 11 and go, that settles it. We don't think so. Um, we don't think so for a variety of reasons, including the fact that there's a number of other passages all through Scripture, from the Old Testament to the New, where God does in fact uh, have women in both leadership and in teaching uh, positions amongst his people. Um, whether it's, you know, the, the entire chapter 15 of Exodus, for example, is written by a woman. Um, so we'd have to tear that chapter out of the Bible, if, if, or at least not read it, if you're a man, if we can't be taught by women. Um, we have Deborah uh, leading the entire nation of Israel in the book of Judges. We have, moving into the New Testament, um, just, just Romans chapter 16 should, should be something to stop us here, because Paul, in that one chapter, is commending... Uh, a number of women who are in ministry with men, kind of at frontline stuff. In fact, one of them, Junius, a female name, he calls an apostle, which was the highest leadership acknowledgement gift in, in, in early Christianity. You have Mary and uh, the uh, Magnificat? 
Yeah, Mary, funny. Mary. Yep. Beautiful sign. Uh, but if if women can't have authority, then they right. should not listen to that. So, so it raises Don't the question. Don't tell you what to do, what to believe. It raises right. the question, so is, it, is, that, is the Bible just contradicting itself? We would say no. Um, rather, let's ask the question, if the Bible actually has a number of women leading and teaching all throughout the, 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 the both testaments, why would the Apostle Paul, at that particular point in history, say that he doesn't allow that? And as, as we've studied that, we've come to the conclusion that Paul had a pr- pretty good reason for why for that particular generation, that time and place, he might say this. Look, Paul's dealing with uh, Gentile converts. That's, that's his whole ministry, is, is newly converted Gentiles who are coming out of pagan religious contexts. And so all the women that are coming into Paul's churches out of these, they don't know, well, men or women don't know the scriptures. They're newly converted and what we know from that time and place is that women were afforded almost no educational opportunity whatsoever. Now, a lot of men weren't either, but if anyone was literate in that society, it would have been men, not women. And so I think, we, we believe, having studied this for a while, that Paul's principle is something like this. Don't put newly converted, illiterate people into leadership and teaching positions in your church. That just wouldn't be wise. I mean, we wouldn't do that today. If, if someone doesn't know the scriptures and they can't read them and don't have access to them, why would you put them in leadership teaching roles in the church? Uh, but Paul, uh, Paul's situation is very different from our situation today. In our situation, there's equal educational opportunities. Women can have access to the word of God just like men can. And we believe that uh, we have women amongst this body and outside of this body that God is clearly gifted with leadership and teaching uh, gifts. And so that's, that's why you'll see uh, women here. That's also why sometimes people say, well, wait a minute, if you read the passage, Paul goes on and says, uh, he bases it uh, on the, the fall account. He goes, because the woman, the woman fell, uh, not the man. Uh, and the man was created first, not the woman. Um, and that's why uh, women shouldn't teach or have authority over the man. You've got to ask the question, uh, what does that got to do with the price of petunias in China? I mean, uh, who was created first? Why should that matter? I mean, the, the vegetables were created before us. Does that give them authority over us? Um, <laughs> but see, if you, if you understand it, it's cultural context. Uh, what we know is that uh, it was a common thing among the rabbis that they explained the reason why Eve fell was because uh, it was Adam's fault for not teaching her enough about that tree. Uh, about the warning that was there. And, um, and so she was in a naive position, and that's why she was vulnerable. And so Paul draws on this as a cultural analogy, saying you know, the women in this culture right here are in the same position Eve was, so they shouldn't be having authority. Change the situation of women, and you'll change the teaching. Uh, you know, God always meets us where we're at in the culture that we're at, uh, but he meets us there to bring us closer and closer to where he wants us to be. And so there's different, whenever we read in the Bible, we've always got to be asking the question, what's cultural and what's, what's transcultural? And one of the ways you can know that you're dealing with something transcultural is because it's a principle. Uh, it, pay attention to the principles, the ideals that are given, and then interpret everything else in light of that. An ideal that's given, one that just blows apart everything in the first century culture, is when Paul says, for example, in Galatians 3, that in Christ is neither slave nor free, neither male nor female, uh, but, but we're all in Christ. That's our new identity. That's an ideal. Everything else there is an acquiescence to that. And you can, there's various ways of telling what, what is culturally relative. Um, one of the things is, what's the whole context like? And it's interesting 
that in his teaching where Paul forbids women to have authority, just before that, he says, women shouldn't wear costly apparel, they shouldn't braid their hair, and they shouldn't wear any jewelry. Well, and then they shouldn't have authority over a man. How convenient that these three are culturally relative, but all oh, this fourth one, bam, we want, we want to keep that and make it a timeless thing. I, I submit to you that that whole section there, there's principles that he's getting at. Paul, Paul just here gave you what some of those are. Principles, there's reasons why he would say in that culture not to wear braided hair and costly apparel, whatever. And it had to do with, this was in Ephesus where there's a temple of Diana. And they have prostitutes at the temple of Diana. They dress like that. So don't dress like the prostitutes uh, in the temple of Diana. Um, I would say the same thing about the uh, teaching and have authority. It's culturally relative. The principle is uh, that, as Paul said, don't raise up people who are illiterate and, and so on in the positions of authority. But God's goal is always to get rid of this whole hierarchical stuff because all of that hierarchical stuff, whether you're talking about men and women or whether you're talking about slaves or anything, all of it is a result of the fall. God's ideal is for humans to relate as humans, and that's it. All right, I think we're going to have time for one more question. But before we get to that, I just want to thank all of you uh, for being here and for participating. This is really fun. And I also want to encourage you to make sure you check out the website. Um, So, because we're not repeating any questions. And so if your question wasn't asked tonight, it might get asked tomorrow morning. Um, And so that would be a great thing to check out and to find out what other people are asking. So for our last question, unless you guys are abnormally quick (laughs) on it. Is there any biblical evidence that those who commit suicide go to hell? My girlfriend, who I know loved Jesus, just killed herself, Mm. and I can't imagine that she's not in heaven. But there are some Christians that I know who are convinced that she's in hell. She was such a kind and servant-hearted person, but on the other hand, how is it fair that she's in heaven now and the rest of us are left with grief and so many questions? Mm. Wow, that is tough. Well, I'd say off the bat that whatever else we're going to say about this question, it's not fair. Why is it fair that she's gone and, and you are left with all these questions, all this pain? Uh, it's not fair. Um, but nothing's fair. I mean, we live in a war zone, fallen war zone, oppressed by fallen powers, and screwed up, messed up, permeated with evil. Nothing's fair. So I, I would lose that uh, hope right now. Someday it will be all made right, but right now... Uh, unfairness and injustice is the name of the game. But as to this particular question, you want to go first on that? I'll just say that, you know, there's been a long tradition, I think an unfortunate tradition, in, uh, in certain sectors of Christianity that have really made suicide almost the unforgivable sin. And I think in, probably in people's minds the idea is, well, any other sin you can sort of repent of, but in suicide, you sort of, you know, you do the act and then you're gone, and there's, there's no time for repentance, and so that's sort of the, you know, no hope after this one. Um, I'll say this, I, that certainly isn't taught in Scripture anywhere. If, if the Christian tradition has come to that conclusion, they're making sort of an inference uh, to a, not, not anything directly taught in Scripture. That's mm-hmm. certainly the... Yeah, yeah, it's... It really goes back to Dante. As far as I know, he was the first one who taught this in his uh, Divine Comedy... Uh, that he puts suicide, it's either the second to the lowest or the lowest. I think it's the lowest. Uh, and, um, and then that became just part of the Christian tradition. And I've met people who are so, I mean, tormented. I mean, maybe someone who's listening to this message will be in the situation. Imagine being a parent and your, your child commits suicide. 
And you have to accept that. I've seen this where the parents have to you know, try to live with this idea that my child is, is in hell. Uh, man, it's, it's, it's torturous. It's vicious. And here's what I would say, aside from just the fact that there's no teaching on that in the Bible, uh, and it's not the unforgivable sin, um, aside, aside from that, always go back to the, remember, to, in all questions, keep your eyes fixed on Jesus and, and the God that he reveals. And, and so I ask, you know, the parents, look, if, if your child commits suicide, are you going to now disown them as your son or daughter because they did that? And their answer would always be, no, no, we, we still love them. That's why the question is so painful. And so if, if you wouldn't reject your child because they did something awful, then why would you think God, who loves them a trillion times more than you, why would you think God would do that? Uh, it, it's, it's so interesting how we are uh, often, we, we, we don't realize it, but we're insulting God because we, we, we don't give him even an equal amount of parental love as we have. We would never do this to our kid. That's a good way to operate. Actually, would you do that to your kid? Well, if not, uh, then why think the father, who is a trillion times more loving than you, uh, would do that to uh, their, their child? And so I, 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 with, with regard to all deaths, you just say you give them to Jesus. The shepherd will not give up until he is there's any hope, any possibility of, of redemption, that the, the shepherd's going to be out there looking for that one sheep. And, um, and you can entrust them into the, the, loving, the loving arms of Jesus. And the only other thing I'd say is that you have to, I mean, there's a lot of reasons why people kill themselves. But I don't think any of them are predicated on having a, a normal mind. I mean, to do that, you have to be pretty desperate. Something terrible has got to be going ha- happening to take your own life. And um, uh, so a lot of times I think suicide, I, I'm not, only God would know the degree to which it, it's even a sin. And for all I know, the person is in a psychologically deranged state. And, um, uh, and God sees that. That's why we can't judge. We can't judge because we don't know why a person did what they did. And that's the all-important question. Only God knows that. And so it, it's important to keep that in mind as you share with people who have maybe had friends, loved ones, or children who have, have uh, had this uh, terrible thing happening. Do you think that demon possession really happens today? Mm-hmm. The Conjuring. For those who don't know, The Conjuring is this show that's out there right now. It's a very scary kind of exorcist uh, uh, movie. Paul and I saw it together because we teach a class on God, evil, and spiritual warfare. And so we like to kind of know what is going on. Uh, well, actually, we gave that as an excuse. We just wanted to see the movie. But uh, it was kind of a research <laughs> project. Research and so we've actually seen it. And uh, it's, it's scary. <laughs> it's very scary. You want to start with it? Sure. Yeah. What was the last part of the question? Um, do you think that demon possession really happens today? Okay. Yeah. So, I mean, you know, every six months, it seems like there's a new movie out that has some kind of demonic possession sort of thing. Clearly, our culture is fascinated with that. I think since The Exorcist back in the 70s, there's sort of been this kind of cultural interest conversation. Yeah. You don't have to demonstrate Sorry. that, right? I do a great Linda Blair <laughs> imitation. Uh, do we think that that stuff happens even today? Um, uh, yeah, we do. Uh, Greg and I have been teaching, co-teaching this, this class together every spring at Bethel since 96. Uh, God, Evil, and Spiritual Warfare. And the reason we designed the class back in, in, the, in that time 
was because we, we, we had both had experiences in our lives of the demonic and weren't finding, at least at Bethel when we were both teaching there, um, a context in that environment to have the conversation around this sort of thing. It seemed like either it was sort of a Hollywood movie sort of thing or people just completely dismissed that as sort of an archaic belief from the past. And we felt from the experiences we had that, that it would be helpful to have a, a context for a conversation like that at a university. Um, I'll let you share if you want to about what you, how, how you got into that. My experience in this was that as a junior, I was at Bethel College at the time as a student. Um, I had come out of about an eight-year period of really rebellion, I guess you'd say, against, uh, about God. I'd grown up in a Christian home and largely had walked away from that for a number of years. And uh, really opened the door, I think, to some, some d- demonic aspects of life. And I'd come back to the Lord and was uh, in a prayer session once with a pastor. Uh, and this pastor had happened to have a number of years of experience of ministry down in Mexico. Uh, when he went there, he didn't believe much in this demonic thing. After he left that period of 16 years, he had come to believe in it quite a bit from what he had seen. And he began to pray for me one day. And... Uh, uh, began to speak uh, about if there's anything in my life that was not of, of the kingdom of God to, to leave that. And the experience I had for the next hour and a half, I, um, I wasn't anticipating. Uh, I, there was some, ended up being a, something uh, in my life that, that he dealt with. And I went through a deliverance, uh, and it was, it was life-changing. And I, I wondered at that point how I could have been in the church up until that age. I was 21 at that point. And no one really talked about this. Uh, it certainly does in the New Testament, all over the place. If you go to non-Western contexts, uh, the church is dealing with this all the time. But it seems in Euro-America, we sort of have forgotten about this. We act as though you know, all the demons went to Haiti or something. Uh, there's plenty here. But as C.S. Lewis said, the first strategy of the enemy is always to, to go underground, to act as if he doesn't exist, because then things are pretty much fair game for him. So, short answer, maybe that's a little longer answer, but yeah, we believe in it. Um, I've actually experienced uh, that sort of thing. I've never been personally, I, I've never had the experience that Paul had, but I've uh, had my share of encounters with this. Um, it, it really surprises me. I'm finding out that a lot of younger, the kind of younger generation of, of evangelicals uh, who are more progressive in their thinking are, are denying the reality of the demonic. It's, it's kind of all out there that, that was sort of just part of the cultural trappings of the New Testament. And I, I just don't get that. I mean, it, the whole spiritual warfare thing plays such a central role in the ministry of Jesus. And um, people throughout history have always just known that there are these hostile, menacing spiritual forces that people have to contend with. In fact, Paul and I have done a lot of research on cross-cultural uh, studies of the demonic, and it's a, uh, there's an increasing amount of, of eyewitness, anthropological, ethnographic uh, reports of people experiencing supernatural stuff um, in, in these other cultures. Uh, I had one, one experience that where I was uh, at a, leading at this conference, and um, at the last day of this conference, it was a Christian conference, but two of the folks in the auditorium uh, began to manifest demons. I mean, it, and it was wild. We prayed for them for five hours until two in the morning, uh, just casting stuff out of them. At one point, this one young lady grabbed me and pulled me like to her face, 
And she was incredibly strong. I, I, that's one of the things that sometimes you find in the New Testament, you find it across cultures, and I've experienced it twice, where the person who's demonized has like a supernatural strength to them. This was a, a young lady, but she was controlling me. She's grabbed me and pulled me. So we're eye to eye, nose to nose, and, and, she, and she's staring into my eyes. And as she's staring into my eyes, one of her eyes rotates counterclockwise three times. And then she laughs with this growly voice and throws me. So you have a hard time convincing me that demons aren't real. <laughs> uh, when you see something like that, it, it's, it's pretty convincing. So yes, we, we think the, the demonic realm is, is real. Uh, we really believe it's important to be balanced on it. Uh, if some of the folks who believe in the demonic stuff, they get obsessed with it. And everything's a demon, and you know, that's their whole ministry. But the other extreme is also bad, and that's where you don't pay any attention to it. We want to have a balanced approach to it. It's real, uh, but we, we don't focus on it. We deal with it when it happens, but our focus is always on, on Jesus Christ. One other point I'd add is we don't uh, like the word possession. Uh, the actual word in the New Testament that gets translated demon possession is, is the word daemonizomai in the Greek, and it doesn't, it's not the word possession at all. That's yeah. a, a bad English translation we would suggest. The word simply means to be demonized. And uh, that's what threw me. When I originally had this experience, I couldn't make sense of it because I was thinking, I'm a Christian. How could I be possessed by the enemy when I'm owned by God? But see, the idea of possession or ownership isn't even in that word. It just means to be influenced by a demonic entity in some way. Um, And when you look through history, church history, um, for most of church history, Christians believed we could open doors to the enemy and require the prayers of brothers and sisters to be freed of that stuff. So once we drop that rather unfortunate term of possession and just say, yeah, demonic entities can have influence in our lives and we can, can come around each other and bring liberation into each other's lives through prayer, I think that puts it in a more biblical context. Well, well, well the very last thing here. <laughs> but it, it's because this is a question that we, we deal with a lot. But. Um, you know, when you watch that movie, if you watch that movie, it, it, it's got some Hollywood sensationalism, some sensationalism in it, but not that much. I mean, I, I think they overdo it some, but um, stuff like that really does happen. And one of the values of a show like that uh, is that it heightens people' awareness of stuff. It, it, it creates a, 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 a spiritual consciousness in an, in a, an environment that's otherwise secular. And it's, it opens up doors uh, to begin to talk about that. If people become aware of the demonic, well, they then are open to maybe talking about what can we do to protect ourselves against it? Who can free us from this? And there's a good chance to, to share Christ with folks. All right. If we, <clears throat> excuse me, if we pray for God to bring a loved one to salvation, aren't we really asking God to override that person's free will and coerce them into getting saved? No. <laughs> Next question. Next, yeah. <laughs> no, you know, the, 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 it, it's funny. People think of, of power almost always in terms of c- control. And so either God has power over someone and therefore can control them, or God doesn't have any power. And so, um, uh, and so it creates this question. If we're praying, Lord, save that person, are we asking God to con- make him into a puppet and bring him in the kingdom? But if God could do that, he'd do it with everybody because he wants everyone to come in the kingdom. But the kind of power that we always deal with in ordinary life is the power of persuasion. Uh, when I'm advocating an idea, I'm, I'm trying to persuade people. Uh, it, it's a kind of power, but it's not coercive power. Um, and and uh, that is, I think, the kind of power that God uses 
um, in this world that he's created with free agents. He is not going to turn folks into robots, but um, he, he does persuade and uses a lot of different means to try to influence people. Um, the cross, Paul says that the cross is the power of God, the wisdom of God and the power of God. Uh, and yet the cross isn't God coercing anybody, but it is God influencing everybody because he's saying, look at my heart. Uh, here's my essence. Here's, here's how I love you. And trying to lure people into the kingdom. It's persuasive power, the power of love. The only kind of power that is compatible with love, in fact, is, is uh, persuasive power, not coercive power. I don't think coercion is ever loving, except in extreme cases where you have a parent who's going to you know, grab your kid who's running out on the street or something. Uh, but uh, among, among adults, it's uh, the power of persuasive love. And that's how I think God um, is, is, runs providence. And when we pray, we're increasing that. Because uh, God set aside a reservoir of power that's available only when his bride will agree with him uh, in prayer. Amen. All right. Beautiful. If God were confined to human emotions, do you think he would be more happy or sad? Ah, that's a Paul question. Read that again. <laughs> if God were confined to human emotions, do you think he would be more happy or mm. sad? Wow. Well, that's good. Yeah, that's really good. That's good. Uh, that sounds very nice. It's a good question. Next question. <laughs> When you, when you see, the, you know, look through scripture and, and the, the narrative of God's, the recorded, recorded narrative of God's dealings with human beings, you see the full range of, of right? You see God's joy. Dan- it says that God dances with joy over, over his people, over his creation. On the other hand, boy, you read, you know, a text like Ezekiel 16, for example, where God depicts his people as an adulterous bride. And you just and hear the pain in God's voice of, of this, this precious people who he envisioned as, a, as this beautiful bride and they have, they have run off with other lovers, basically idols and things we fill our lives up other than with God. So I think, I think God has the full range of, of, of experiences that anyone does who's in a love relationship uh, with someone who is both learning to love and oftentimes falls away from love as we do as human beings. I don't know how you do the calculus of which he'd have more or less of that. I guess if you took the eternal view, that in the end, it'll be mostly joy, right? Because in the end, all things will be summed up in Jesus Christ. All things will be made new. His bride, us, his people, will be redeemed, will be fully glorified, and will be the faithful bride that he's always wanted. So if you take the eternal view, I think, in the ultimately... Joy will win out for God, but boy, in the midst of human history, there's, there's a lot of pain, I think, for God in, in the midst of... It's really an important joy. question. Um, throughout the church tradition, um, they, they've had an assumption that to be God means that um, it's undignified for God to ever be anything other than, less, than totally blissful. Um, and, and so they have, uh, many theologians have uh, held to what's called the impassibility of God, which means he's, he's above suffering or even experiencing strong emotions. But of course, if you take your cue about what God is like from the cross, you would never say that God is free of suffering. The cross is all about God's suffering. And throughout the Bible, as Paul just said, he experiences strong emotion uh, and a wide range of emotions. Um, I think that there's a way of, of, of construing it, however, that, that can make sense of this extremity. You know, having a, a real sense of joy is not incompatible 
with at the same time having a real uh, kind of pain and suffering. You can feel joyful just knowing in your own relationship with God and have a total sense of well-being. Uh, and yet you empathize with others and you suffer with others. And you can have those two simultaneously. Mm. In fact, the more uh, you are fulfilled as an individual and have a joy just being who you are as a creature of God, the more, the more you're, you're freed up to empathize with others. And I think God is the, the most extreme example of that. I think Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit have a, un, have a, have a, a perfect joy and a bliss in the, the shared love of the triune God. And it's out of the fullness of that joy that now God can enter into the suffering of, of humans and even take that suffering upon himself. Uh, and so I, I think both are, are, are perfectly compatible. Good question. Good. I can understand the right of free choice where God does not interfere because he has to let people make their own mistakes. But why doesn't he save children who are born with disabilities or other situations where it's no one's fault? Problem of evil. Yeah. Is the, is the question uh, what, what happens to those folks uh, who have disabilities? No, it's more like, why doesn't God interfere? Like. We have oh. free will, we have free choice, but there's some circumstances where it was no one's fault that a bad thing yeah, happened. Yeah, 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 yeah. Okay. Um, but I, the way I put it together is like this. Um, the fall affected everything. If you read Genesis 3, uh, nature changes because of the fall, the, the human rebellion. Uh, and you have this, this thing throughout the, throughout the biblical narrative uh, where um, the, the whole creation, Paul says, has been subject to futility, to decay, to frustration. Uh, and so the fall, I mean, we're oppressed by principalities and powers uh, that, that corrupt everything. I think in this fallen world, nothing operates the way it's supposed to operate. Uh, and the, the, the most important aspect of that, I think, is this, that you know, when, when one person harms another and um, you know, violates another person, we understand that based on free will. And that's what this question is asking. But see, if we understand that there are agents that corrupt nature itself, that we don't have the kind of authority over nature that we're initially supposed to have, um, then you can see how when, when people suffer what's called natural evil, disabilities, things that weren't any human being's fault, it still is explainable by referencing to a free will. It's the free will of cosmic powers. Uh, and so when, when, when I see people who are, uh, have deformities and, and blindness or things just aren't working the way they're supposed to work, I, I think that is no different than when I see one human being violate another human being or one group violate another group. It's just that the agents that are, um, are, have acted in, in the ways that, that cause this person to suffer, they're not human agents, they're cosmic agents, they're spiritual agents. So I think appealing to free will explains all categories of uh, suffering and evil in this world. It doesn't mean that there is a particular demon behind every particular thing that people experience, uh, every affliction they experience, but it does mean that uh, they wouldn't be suffering the way they're, they're suffering now if it wasn't for the decisions that were made uh, by these demonic powers that corrupt nature. That's why, you know, Jesus, and take all your cues about God and everything else from Jesus. If you look at Jesus, he confronts, Luke 13, for example, this lady who's got um, uh, some, some disease that's causing her back to be bent over. That, that's what we would call natural evil. Uh, she was born this way, apparently. Uh, she's got a disfiguration. And Jesus identifies this specifically as, as a bondage of Satan. 
Uh, she's being, been afflicted by Satan. In fact, in Acts 10.38, uh, Peter summarizes Jesus' whole ministry by saying that he went around doing good and freeing, healing all those who were oppressed by the devil. And so healings were seen as being a freedom uh, from Satan's oppression. And so uh, I, I think we have reasons to say that, that there's always a free agent behind everything in creation that is wrong. It's just that behind the things that are wrong that aren't attributable to the humans... Uh, the agents are not humans, but they're these cosmic powers. The only thing I'd add to that is to say, one, this is a very important question. I think when you look through the history of, of uh, theology and things, uh, probably the single most, uh, single, uh, most common cause of people either doubting God's goodness or even getting to the point of doubting God's very existence. You might say the thing that's, ca- that's created the most atheists on the planet is the problem of evil, I think. Mm-hmm. And, and, and particularly this element of the problem of evil, natural, what we call natural evil. So one, the, the, this question is really important about who how you picture God. Is God really as beautiful right. as Jesus Christ says he is? Uh, and secondly, although Greg's far too humble or modest to say this, he's written a couple of really good books that, that uh, deal with this. So if this question is one that troubles you, I'd highly recommend Greg's uh, book, uh, Is God to Blame? That gets really into some in-depth, helpful responses to this question. Thank you, Paul. Yeah. No, I, now I've got to pay him royalties or something, I imagine. Just 5%. <laughs> A little endorsement. What do you guys think of the Proof of Heaven book and others like it? As Christians, what can we learn, if anything, from near-death experiences? I guess from the Proof of Heaven book, it was written by this uh, neurosurgeon who uh, had this brain trauma and for, I think it was a week, uh, was in this deep coma. And when he came out, his life was all changed. And he reports in this Proof of Heaven about this experience that he had while he was... Uh, they, they couldn't measure any brain activity. That's what makes it significant is that there was no brain activity going on. And yet um, he reports all these very lucid uh, experiences. I haven't read it. Well, it, it, here's the thing is... Uh, it, you know what? It's not proof of heaven. <laughs> uh, you can explain it in different ways. Um, it, it is impressive that this guy's life was so turned around and, and it went in a Christian direction because of this. But w- when I read those kind of books, whether it's proof of heaven or you know any kind of, there's a, several of them out there. That one kid who reports about his visions and all conforms to the Book of Revelation or whatever. Um, I would take that as at most. It's at best interesting. Uh, and possibly God was working through the person and, and there's something you know, good about it. But I would never base any, any uh, uh, theology on it. I mean, for one thing, if you look, read these accounts, um, everybody seems to experience, when they have near-death experiences of, of some sort, they all experience what they expected to experience, or for, for the most part. Now, this guy was a little different, and it changed him, but uh, that gal uh, in the 90s who wrote uh, Into the Light, or whatever it was oh, called. Uh, yeah, yeah, she, she was a Mormon, and guess what? When she died, she experienced a Mormon heaven. Well, I have reasons to think that uh, that was misguided. Base your, your thinking about heaven, hell, the afterlife, and all that on Scripture, uh, not on any kind of experiences that are that are reported, um, and experiences you know go ahead and read those, but uh, and they can be interesting, but I, I wouldn't look at it as reliable information uh, of any sort. I think the one thing I'd add to that is most experiences, most near death experiences, what's reported is something like uh, you know white light tunnel experience and then some sort of afterlife thing. 
Um, the, the, the type that I find really interesting are the least common type, uh, often called veridical or corroborative near-death experience. Mm. These are experiences not of some other world, but actually someone reporting, like, I, I left my body, and then they stayed in this world. And, like, in one case I, I know of, uh, this woman's not died on the operating table, uh, left her body, floated out of the operating room, down the hall of a hospital, and outside of the hospital, and then came back and was, was also in her body and reported that while she was having this experience, she saw a red tennis shoe, maybe a blue tennis shoe, out on this roof of this hospital. And eventually a nurse went out and looked, and here was this blue tennis shoe thrown up on the roof that you couldn't have seen from any. I find it to be really fascinating uh, potential evidence for the existence of a soul yeah. that's different from the body. And I think that is something worth, worth considering in terms of, of near-death experience. True that. True that. The Bible seems to use two different formulas for baptism, one in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and another in Jesus' name. Is there a difference, and why does the Bible teach both formulas? Mmm. Mmm. Greg, this is this. Well, you wrote a book. You know, the, the, the first church that I came to Christ in, I made a big deal out of this. They, they baptized in Jesus' name. Uh, Acts 2.38 says that they were, folks were baptized in Jesus' name and a couple other places in the book of Acts. Um, and you weren't saved, in fact, if you were baptized with the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit set over you. So the words that were set over you determine whether you went to heaven or hell. Uh, it, was, it was really... Of course, then they had some fights because some people said, well, you have to be baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Others said, no, it has to be in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, others said it has to be just in the name of Jesus Christ. And they had church splits over that. As, as though God is so anal, he's up there, and he's going to damn you to hell because somebody missed a word when you went under the water. Ah. So the most important thing to say about this is that, you know, look at the, the character of God that's presupposing the question. And, and whatever you think about this, I would really encourage folks not to think that heaven and hell hang on the answer to this question. Uh, it's still an interesting question, however. And here's the thing. I, I would argue that when, when uh, in the book of Acts it says they were baptized in Jesus' name, uh, it's not giving us a formula there. Like these are the words you're supposed to say when you go under the water. I mean, for example, Paul says in Colossians, do everything in the name of Jesus. Well, does that mean I have, to, I have to say in Jesus' name if I take a drink of water? Or I have to say in Jesus' name if I scratch my head or put on my shoes or something? No, he's not giving a formula there. He's just saying, do everything with a view towards Jesus Christ. Uh, live your life under the authority of Jesus Christ. Um, and so I don't think they're giving a formula there. That wasn't their concern at all. Uh, he's just identifying a specifically Christian form of baptism as opposed to John the Baptist kind of baptism or the ceremonial washings that the Jews did. Christians were baptized in Jesus' name, with a view towards, towards Jesus. In fact, we've got a lot of accounts of folks uh, among the Jews. They had these ceremonial washings that were kind of a prelude to baptism. And they would do these washings in the name of, and then they'd list a whole bunch of things, in the name of Israel, in the name of Rabbi Shimon, in the name of the Torah. But that doesn't mean that they were reciting those words when they did those things. It just means that they were doing it uh, with, with a view towards those, the things that they named. That's what gave their, their thing significance. So I think it's just misguided to make that into some kind of a formulaic uh, a thing. And then to base a doctrine on it and split churches over and convince people they're going to hell if they're not baptized the right way. Don't do that. Amen. Please. All right. This is a follow-up question to the first question about the conjuring. Are mediums and psychics, such as Long Island medium, demonic? Go ahead, Paul. 
Thank you. I've been talking too much. I've never watched, what is it, Long Island Medium? Yes. Or John Edwards, he does that thing where he talks to dead people. Yeah. I'm a Christian. I don't watch those shows. Uh, (laughs) No. (laughs) I do it for research, just like The Conjuring. (laughs) Here's what I, I, my, my, my sense on this is that the scriptures through, through both testaments are pretty clear that um, dabbling into the world of the spiritual unknown is always a risk. Mm-hmm. Uh, in this culture, we often think, particularly since I think the rise of sort of the you know, post-1960s interest in just sort of spirituality, uh, people kind of, well, I'm not religious, but I'm spiritual. And what that's sort of done, I think, is opened people up to this idea of sort of a spiritual smorgasbord. Uh, pick whatever works for you, as long as it works for you. Um, and the only thing that's really bad in that world is something that's just overtly evil and demonic. Well, you know, the Apostle Paul says that Satan himself can, can appear as an angel of light. Uh, I think some of the most deceptive stuff of the enemy isn't stuff that, like, Satan worship. That, that's sort of obvious. It's stuff that has maybe 98% truth and just enough of a twist to put an idol in the place of Jesus Christ. And so um, this whole idea of, of psychics and mediums, I think why scripture really challenges us, us to stay away from that stuff is what that's doing is really uh, putting a focus on trust in some ways of knowing the future that aren't about trust in God, but are, mm. are uh, through means, I would say, of, of the other kingdom coming into supernatural knowledge that's going to give me one up in this world. And um, yeah, it's just, it's all over scripture. There's big warnings about that sort of thing. Trust in God, trust in Jesus, find your life there, um, not sort of bypass God in order to get the inside track on some supernatural knowledge through some other means that you don't know if you can trust anyway. What really is behind that, that voice? That's the most important word to say about it. It's just you're, you're playing with fire. Not everything out there is nice. Uh, there's a spiritual realm that is very evil. And when you dial up something outside of God's will, uh, trying to divine things, you don't know what you're going to get. And um, it can be very misleading. The only thing I'd add is, is this. It doesn't mean that everything that doesn't conform to our Western worldview is yeah. demonic. Uh, and my daughter, uh, Danae, when she was young, for about three or four years, when she was really young, she had some uncanny abilities where you'd be thinking of something and she would ask about it uh, over and over again. Or you would have something was lost and she would know where it is. Uh, and she could just kind of see it. And uh, I mean, I could tell you stories that were just wild. And we had friends that thought it was demonic because people aren't supposed to know that kind of stuff. But we weren't playing with Ouija boards or anything. She just had this. It was an innocent thing. She just had this knowledge. Um, I did a lot of research on this just to try to figure out what was going on, and I found out that there's actually quite a bit of good, solid scientific evidence that certain human beings, especially children of a certain sort that might fit the profile that my daughter was in, uh, sometimes have these uh, uncanny abilities. And I think what's going on you find also that some people who practice uh, certain forms of meditation for years and years are able to tap into this. I, I suspect that what's going on there is that um, uh, these folks are tapping into uh, an uh, ability that we all would have had were we not in this fallen condition. I, when we fell uh, as a race, I think we lost a lot of our capacities in a lot of areas. 
Uh, some folks have this unusual ability to communicate with animals and just kind of influence animals, you know, the horse whisper kind of thing. Uh, and it's not necessarily demonic. They're just tapping into some kind of innate potential uh, that the rest of us have lost. Um, and so I, I, don't pull the trigger on everything that doesn't fit our grid as being demonic. On the other hand, I, I, it really behooves us to uh, walk in the ways of God when it comes to trying to interact with the spiritual realm because doing anything else is, is inviting uh, problems into your life. I'm confused about how God relates to time. In one sense, he seems to be outside of time by knowing and causing certain future events. Yet he also seems to be in time by responding to free agents' decisions as they occur. It seems like these viewpoints are in conflict. How do you see God relating with time? I can answer that one. <laughs> well, you know, here's the question. The question presupposes, I mean, why is there a problem with God relating to us? Uh, it presupposes that God's not in time. Uh, and so you have this idea that comes out of Greek philosophy that God is, is, is timeless. He experiences everything in a simultaneous blip. From all eternity, it's all there. And now there's a problem. How does a God who, whose real existence is timeless interact with us in time? Uh, but where do you find that in the Bible? This idea that God is simply in this eternally the same now. It's not in the Bible. It's in Plato. And Plutonus and, and others, and it crept into the church through that means. But in the Bible, uh, we're in sequence, and God is in sequence, and therefore we can talk with one another. It's no different than you relating to me and me relating to you. Now, there's a difference, obviously, with, with God's uh, experience of time. Uh, just like when I relate to my granddaughter, uh, this year will be much longer for her in her experience than it is for me, because this year will be 156th of my life. Whereas it will be one-fourth of her life. And so her experience of time will be very different than mine. But precisely because I'm older and more mature and, and have had more experience, I can relate to her. We can, we can interact. And I, I know how to kind of chunk down to, to engage with her. I think God also experiences a thousand years like a day, a day like a thousand years. His measurement, since he's lived forever, any duration of time will be one Infinity of his total life experience, so to speak. Um, and so what we experience as being this long billion year, couple billion years of history, um, he will experience as a, as a nanosecond. But there's still sequence. There's still give and take, just like with me and my granddaughter. And so there's no, there's no problem. Uh, it's the only problem if you think that God is in an eternal now. You would agree with that, wouldn't you, Paul? Let's just leave if you're it right smart, here. you'd agree with that. Okay. <laughs> A lot of the problems that folks have uh, with theology is a result of uh, a lot of Greek influence uh, that they're, 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 they wouldn't be problems if we didn't have a conception of God that uh, was derived from philosophy rather than from scripture based on Jesus. And that's all I have to say about that. <laughs> I grew up in a church where we heard about the coming rapture all the time. But I don't think I've ever heard Greg preach about the rapture once in all the time I've been at Woodland. What kind of don't you guys believe in the rapture? Yeah, Greg. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Greg. <laughs> well, we believe in the second coming. Uh, Jesus is going to return. Um, but um, I, I don't think we know any of the details of how that's going to take place. Nor do we need to know the details any more than I know I'm going to die, but unless the Lord comes back. Uh, but um, I don't need to know how or, or, or anything like that. 
uh, obsessing on details that I think are a major distraction. Um, you know, I, this rapture teaching, if you don't know what that's about, it's the idea that Jesus is going to come back on the clouds and uh, he's going to literally uh, suction uh, his people out of the earth and um, then go away. And then, then the Antichrist is going to come and the word, world kind of goes to hell in a handbasket um, and so on. So that's the whole uh, Hal Lindsey thing or the left behind uh, Tim, Tim LaHaye <clears throat> and that whole best-selling series that they had. It's predicated on that. It's what I was taught when I was first a Christian, and I was so surprised to find out when I went to seminary that that doctrine, that belief, was not in the church until the early part of the 19th century. Um, And then it kind of gradually grew. Uh, There's one verse that that people interpret to base this this idea of the rapture on uh, in 1 Thessalonians 4, but the church always took that to be a, a metaphor up until the early 19th century. And so, whether you believe it or not, it's up to you, you know, interpret scripture how you want. But I wouldn't base a doctrine on that. Um, and I think there's, there's, some, there's some negative repercussions that happen when you do. Uh, for example, I'll just list one. Uh, it tends to foster an escapist mentality. We're gonna leave this world, and it's gonna go to hell in a handbasket. And, uh, well, that means that there's really no responsibility we have to take care of the world. Uh, you know, the, the end game is for us to get out of here. And we used to sing a lot of songs in my Pentecostal church about that. You know, we're going to just leave here, goodbye world, goodbye, and all of that. Uh, but it seems to me, God doesn't give up on real estate, as I've, I've taught here uh, in several sermons. This is his planet. He loves this planet. He's going to renew this planet. Uh, we're supposed to take care of this planet. So the goal isn't for us to leave and go to heaven. The goal is for us to bring heaven down here. And that's the end game. And it's going to all be transformed. Yeah. I grew up in a church as well where I just assumed everyone believed in the rapture. Like, that's what we're all kind of waiting for. Um, It was surprising. I think it was about 20 years old when I found out that through most of church history, people hadn't seen things that way. There's more than a few verses than just one that get interpreted as rapture. Oh, yeah. I mean, one will be taken and one will be left. But but here's the thing. The word rapture is only one. Oh, there's a number of texts that people will point to to say, look, uh, it, doesn't it look like we're going, there's going to be a moment when Jesus comes like halfway back and we get caught up to meet him and then he turns around and goes back for seven years and then comes back for kind of the, 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 the full coming. And um, it's helpful to always read the Bible in its ancient context, right? What would, have, what would an ancient Greco-Roman person in the first century have thought about of a king coming to a city and a people going to meet him. See, in the ancient world, when a a conquering Roman general came back from war and he's uh, coming over the horizon toward the city gates, uh, a group of the people, of the citizens of the country would go out and meet that king and then come back Mm -hmm. in with him celebrating his victory. And so, usher the king in. Right, to usher the king in, not to go out and meet him and then take off again, but to come back and, and celebrate. And so that makes a lot of sense in the first century world. If you read it out of context, you can come up with something like the rapture, uh, which really until the 1830s no one had ever heard about before. So I think that, that always read the Bible in its historical context. I, I, I preached a sermon on this, I think a year ago or two years ago, if, you're, if this is an issue for you. I forget what it was called, uh, but it was on, if you do a little search on the website, you'll, you'll be able to find it. But it, it was all about this rapture theory and, and some of the harm that it does and stuff like that. 
So I do preach on the rapture, just never in a positive way. <laughs> all right, well, I want to thank all of you guys for being here. I think we have time for about one more question. We can get through two, I bet. Uh, I think we got time for one. We'll be very succinct. <laughs> <laughs> and, but you guys, you have such great questions. And so I just want to say thank you for that. Thank you for your participation. We really enjoy this. And I also want to encourage you to make sure that you check out the website after, um, after it's posted, these sermons, because we're not answering um, any of the same questions over and over again. We're only asking new and different questions. So if your question wasn't asked this service, it might have been asked a different service. And plus, it's always cool to see what other people are asking about so please um please do that for your last question unless you answer it super fast (laughs) what does satan get out of doing and creating evil things why would he care about harming people what does he get out of it Mm. it's good you know in genesis uh, chapter 1 verses 26 to 28 we have the first i think the most crucial statement about what god's intention was for human beings And it's that we would reflect the image and the likeness of God. I think what Satan gets out of harming humanity, which seems to be where most of his energy is going, is to destroying human relationships, humans' relationships with God, with each other, with ourselves, with the creation. Uh, my, My sense would be that Satan hates God, but he knows he can't get to God. What he can get to is that which God loves that which looks like God, that which images God. And so I think a lot of uh, Satan's angst and energy of, of, of evil towards human beings is it's as getting as close to hurting God and that which looks like God as he can get. You can't actually, actually get to God himself. I, I, I think he, you know, he, the, the motivation is um, one of, of just hatred. Uh, there is a kind of uh, diabolical place I think even humans can get to, where you just want to destroy. Um, you, you want to strike back out of pain and out of your hatred and anger. You, you, you engage in evil for the sake of evil. And um, it could just be that he, is, he knows that he is a goner and he just wants to take as many people down with him. So he's just pure destruction. Um, on the other hand, I, I would also argue that, that evil makes you stupid. Um, that, that it jades you, at least in certain ways. In, in all the ways that are morally significant, it jades you. Because you can't get love. You don't, you don't understand that. To the degree that you're evil, you, you just don't get that. And uh, it, it's possible, I think, that uh, while Satan is super intelligent uh, in terms of IQ, everything seems to indicate that, it, it could be profoundly stupid when it comes to everything dealing with love. Uh, it, it could be that his, his hard heart has, has deceived him to the point where he thinks he can still win. Uh, he could be so jaded that he, he still thinks he could maybe pull, uh, you know, a victory out of defeat. Uh, and so he's, he's motivated by that. He still wants to be the ruler. He, he should be it, not, 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 not God or not human beings. Um, so we, we don't know. We don't know. But either of those, I think, is a real plausible uh, answer. Uh, I really so appreciate a, a church environment where uh, it's okay to ask questions. Um, and, and, you know, as Paul and I are up here sharing, uh, if, if the answers fit, then fine. If not, then think of something better and, and share it with us. I mean, we're all in process and we're all growing. And I think it's through uh, addressing questions uh, that we, we, we sharpen one another and um, uh, we, we grow. 
uh, it's really unfortunate when you have church environments, and sadly there's so many of them out there that are like this, where um, because of some leader's insecurity, their, their views has to be everyone's view, uh, and uh, to keep that in place, you're not allowed to ask questions. And I know some of you, uh, like myself, have been in environments like that. Where asking questions means that you're rebellious or you got a Jezebel spirit or, or whatever. Uh, no, you know what? God gave us minds for a reason. And we're supposed to worship Him with our minds. And uh, that means thinking is allowed. I, I think doing this is a form of worship. We're ascribing word to God. He gave us minds. Let's use them. Let's think. Yes. It's a, it's a good thing. God says, come let us reason. Let's think through things. Maybe you'll get an answer. Maybe you won't. But it's good to be uh, thinking along the way nonetheless. All right. You ready for your first one? Well, we better be. We only have another half hour, so. <laughs> All right. How can you really be sure that the Bible accurately depicts the life and words of Jesus, especially given that three of the four Gospels are restatements of the same source? What if they are wrong? Isn't that pretty scant evidence for belief? Paul's done a little research on this. A little, little research. Good question. Um, how do we know that uh, the Gospels are an accurate depiction of Jesus? You know, if you've been around Woodland at all for any length of time and, and really listened to Greg's uh, casting of a kingdom vision, he's made it so clear that, 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 that Christ is the center of all things. And so this, this is a seriously important question because if we're not clear about who Jesus Christ is, it's very difficult to be Christocentric in, in our lives. I guess the first thing I'd say is, while this is the, the, the question of the reliability of the Gospels is very important, I'd say that, that the Gospels aren't the only way that we... Can know Christ. I think when you, when you ask the question, how do we know anything? Uh, really, there's, there's one of three ways we know things, either trust, reason, or experience. And um, for a lot of people, I think the way they would say they know that, the, that Christ is who he says he is, is about a personal experience we've had with Jesus. As the old, old hymn, uh, a lot of hymns say, uh, that, that it's, it's the knowledge of God that we have personally. Right? But I would want to say that reason, engaging our mind, is also an important question. And so when we've got these four Gospels, as this question asker um, suggests, three of them are related. Uh, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, we call those the synoptic Gospels because there appears to be some literary relationship between the three of them. How do we know that that's an accurate depiction? Um, Greg and I spent about four years of our lives, between 2003 and seven, uh, writing two books uh, on this topic. One's called The Jesus Legend, kind of a larger academic book, a smaller version called Lord of Legend. So I'll say if you're really interested in this topic, those two books are four years of our life poured into wrestling with this question. What we did is we asked the basic questions of how do you determine the historicity, the reliability of any text. And it turns out that historians have a certain set of tests. Uh, Is the text reliable? Uh, Are there internal Uh, dimensions to the text that would suggest that the authors are intending to write reliable history, were in a position to write reliable history, and have the earmarks of reliable history. For example, are there self-damaging details in this text that you wouldn't put in there if you were trying to fabricate things? Are there um, inner contradictions so bad so that it looks like this is just uh, not able to sustain a whole range of, of tests. Uh, then external tests. Do the texts that we're looking at for Gospels correspond to other literature about the topic? For example, other texts about Jesus in the ancient world, and there are some. Um, do the texts corroborate with archaeological evidence? So we looked at all these tests, ran them through 
uh, ended up in about a 400-some page book, and we came out um, arguing that on purely historical grounds, not, you know, well, we're Christians, so we get to say this, but on purely historical grounds, there's really good evidence to trust the historical reliability of these texts as they report on the life and teachings of Jesus. We, we, we really went at it in a, in, a, in a negative way. We asked the question, um, suppose someone wants to argue that uh, the Gospels are substantially or entirely legendary, because that's your only alternative. This is all legend. And um, we looked at every scholarly uh, argument that has been made to that effect, that the Gospels are substantially legendary, and just deconstructed it. And I, I think showed, because you can show in history, uh, that, that that thesis is uh, very hard to maintain. That this is just kind of a legendary thing that just kind of grew. Uh, while while J- Jesus' brother is still around, James, uh, you know, the, and, and while the mother is still there, while the disciples are still there in the same environment, this guy supposedly went from being a carpenter to the Lord God Almighty uh, in a span of you know a couple decades. Well, the brothers are brothers are still alive, and the mother and all that. It's just a very hard thing to argue. I think we've got more solid grounds for believing that the Gospels are generally reliable uh, than we've got for most historical figures. So it's it's a solid foundation, I believe. Okay, your next question. Is it possible to convert Satan from his evil ways? Could we pray for him and see a change in Satan's heart? Good luck with that one. Uh, I've tried witnessing to the dude a number of times. He's not listening. He's he's obstinate. I don't know. You know, there's nothing in the Bible that says, um, that that holds out any hope for uh, Satan and the demonic powers. Uh, We're not ever told to to pray for him or, or anything of the sort. Um, we're also not told to hate him. Uh, we hate what he does and all that, but I, I think hatred of any sort is always uh, a negative thing in your life. Um, don't, don't make it personal. We're told to resist the devil and flee from us, but other than that, we just go about our business. Um, and so uh, I, I encourage folks to, since we're not giving any directives on, on praying for him or evangelizing or whatever, let God take care of all that. Our job is with humans and to live a kind of life and to share with others. Uh, that in a way that brings people into the kingdom. Those, those are the conversions that we're supposed to be uh, concerned with. Okay. I feel like my spouse sometimes is working to bring me down. How do I keep my joy and peace when the person who is created to be my partner is working against me? Mm-hmm. It happens. <laughs> it happens. What do you do? You know, I think a lot of... What marriage doesn't, doesn't have moments that, that this could represent, right? Where there's struggle in, in the marriage. I, you know, I, I believe uh, a lot of this has to do with what you believe the purpose of marriage is. And I think over, particularly over the last 200 years in Western culture, since the Romantic movement of the 1800s, and then ever since then, this idea of romance, of sort of finding one's soulmate, and that one's marital romantic partner will, will basically fulfill all of your dreams. We, this has taken on an idolatrous dimension, I think, in our lives. I mean, it's almost, in, for many people's lives, become the centerpiece, even like, like that's what's really going to fulfill us. Yeah. And then we tack Jesus on so we don't go to hell. Um, <laughs> you know, as I understand marriage as a covenant relationship, I think the purpose of every covenant relationship, including marriage, for the kingdom person should be to have a context in which to grow in the character of Jesus Christ. 
And if, if my spouse, and my spouse is sitting here, who's That's a lovely young lady. She's about as Jesus-like as it gets with regard to spouses. But I, I believe that every time Kelly it and I... It have to be to stay married to you. I couldn't hey, resist. Hey. I couldn't resist. I couldn't resist. I couldn't help it. There's supposed to be a friendship covenant here, dude. <laughs> Insultings are love language. Yeah. <laughs> if we see every relationship, including marriage is primarily not about making me happy. Like, that's not the point, purpose in life. That can be icing on a cake, and it's certainly nice when your marriage is, is happy. But if the purpose of life is to grow in love, to be formed in the character of Jesus Christ, then it's probably the cases in our marriage when I'm being tested the most to not be Christ-like that give me the opportunity to actually die to self, to, to be other-oriented, to choose love rather than simply feel love. And so I appreciate the the question, and we all want you know, a happy marriage. But if the real purpose, as we agree, of spouses is to, to challenge each other and love each other through the tough times, um, even an unhappy day in your marriage can be kingdom-producing if it's producing self-sacrificial love in the midst of, of that relationship. Yeah. I, I would encourage uh, folks who are in relationships where they're maybe not necessarily remotely like uh, a kingdom marriage where you're supposed to be encouraging one another and in this case the person feels like the person is tearing them down um, to use the pain of the relationship to drive you closer to Christ uh, you know so sometimes there's one advantage God can bring good out of anything and one of the goods he can bring out of a painful marriage is that uh, the, the kind of companionship and closeness and intimacy you're hoping to get you're not getting so let that hunger because we all hunger for that drive you to the cross um, and, and lean all the more on Christ. And, and the truth is, whether you're talking about pain in a marriage or just pain in life, I mean, there's, if it's not a spouse who's, who's tearing you down, there's plenty of other people who are, are, are out there who can do the same thing. And, and, and learning how to maintain joy in the midst of all circumstances uh, is, is what, it, what it's all about. I mean, that, that's, that, that's how we grow. Um, gospel promises that we can have a joy even when facing death. Um, there can be a joy that, that is completely unconditional. But it, that means it has to be a joy that's based totally on your relationship with Christ and, and what he thinks about you. And then out of the fullness of, of life that we have from Christ, that empowers us then to bring life and wisdom and other things to the marriage. See, if, if you're going to the marriage to try to get the life, then, then you've got nothing to bring to it. Yet your, your source has been depleted. But if you're getting it from Christ, that gives you an ability to... Despite the hardships and the, the maybe negative statements or whatever, to, to bring something to it and, and ask the question maybe, why is your spouse trying to tear you down? And maybe there's something that you can change or you can correct that would make that a better marriage. But the, it all depends on, like everything else in the kingdom, it depends on our learning how to get all of our life and worth and source and significance and security uh, from our relationship with Christ. Can God hear my prayers if I just say them in my head? If so, can Satan hear those same prayers? Yeah, I, I, God can hear those prayers. My dad, it was so cute. When he, uh, uh, he, he came to Christ at the age of 73, uh, we talk about that, and uh, the, the conversations that led up to it are found in the book Letters from a Skeptic. So he, he comes to Christ at the age of 73, and then at the age of 74 starts having these strokes and other things that were just making him increasingly disabled and at one point I went to visit him in this room 
And he had had this uh, major stroke that really left his, uh, had a serious speech impairment. And uh, as he was laying there, uh, I just, you know, I said, Dad, you know what, right now I know you physically can't do a whole lot, but you, uh, can I give you an assignment? Uh, will you be my prayer warrior and just keep me covered in prayer? <laughs> and he, he, uh, he said uh, uh, he would love to do that, uh, but he just says, I'm just wondering, though, I, I have trouble talking. Do you think God will understand if I just think the prayers? <laughs> it was just it was so odd because he was such a, um, an arrogant intellectual man. He was so, you know, a know-it-all-ish, you know, kind of guy and, and uh, real in, in, intellectual into his head. But here he was like a little child just asking the question, do you think it's okay if I just think in my head? And I said, Dad, sure. God, God knows your every thought. The Bible tells us that. And, um, uh, and, and so go ahead and just think the prayers. Um, and so, yeah, that'd be my answer. Uh, it, it's, it's, it, it's, you can think the prayer, you can speak the prayer. There is something extra that happens, I think, the more of ourselves we pour into something. Like praying out loud, most people find it, it has more reality than if you just think it. Um, and, and so I encourage people to, uh, all things being equal, to pray out loud and, and voice your prayers. But clearly, it, it's okay just to think the prayer, and sometimes you can't talk, so you have to just think the prayer. Uh, as for Satan, I, I don't see any indication in, in the Bible that uh, he's omniscient. In fact, I know he's not omniscient. And I, I, don't, I, I don't have any uh, um, reason to think that he can read our thoughts. Uh, now, people disagree on that, and we could debate it, but it's not a very important question, really. If, uh, you know, just uh, think, think in ways and speak in ways, and whether it's, whether it's praying or anything else, do it in ways where um, uh, it doesn't give him any advantage, and that renders the question uh, superfluous. I have another question on prayer for you. Are introverts at a disadvantage when it comes to the power of prayer? I don't have many friends, and I know that the amount of people praying means something. Mm. Mm. Uh, as, you know, as Greg has um, written about and certainly preached about different uh, seasons in our church when he talks about prayer, um, there's a number of, of dimensions or variables in Scripture that are given for uh, relating to prayer, and one of, them, one of them seems to be the number of people praying. But I would say, you know, I tried to count once, and I think I counted 20 different variables that the Bible talks about uh, that can affect uh, prayer. And that's, that's only one of, of at least 20 that I know of. Um, we, we can't control all the variables of prayer. I mean, one of the variables is uh, whether there's spiritual static from the demonic, which has, we don't even know about. That, that's, you know, in the, in, the, in the spiritual realm. So I guess what I would say is when it comes to prayer... Uh, we're responsible to control the variables that we can control. We can control whether we pray, for example. We can control whether we're persistent in prayer, personally. Uh, we can control whether uh, we are attempting to walk with Jesus faithfully or whether we're not. Because according to James, the prayer of someone who's rightly related to God and others has more effect than someone who's outbreaking relationship and covenants and hurting people. So there's, there's a number of things we can be responsible for and do our best to do. There's other things we can't. And uh, I, I really believe, I mean, I'd encourage someone, if, introvert or not, to be in Christian community. Uh, you might not be the most uh, outgoing person, but 
part of the call of, the, of, of kingdom people is to find a place to plug in to community relationships. In a large church like this, I know that can, can be a challenge when you walk in and all you see is this. So I would encourage you not to let Sunday morning or Saturday night be your only experience of church coming into an auditorium like this. Find a place to connect so that you do find people who are in your life who can cover you in prayer. That would be my encouragement. Good. Good. Okay. I have several non-Christian friends who care deeply about the creation. They believe that the Bible and Christianity have encouraged the abuse and exploitation of animals and the environment. How should I respond? Is there a strong biblical, um, is there a, strong biblical basis for taking care of the creation? Mm, good, good question. Good. Really good question. Uh, you know, the, I think your friends have a, a, a legitimate gripe with the church. Um, the church, beginning in the 4th and 5th centuries, when it inherited all that power from Constantine, uh, and begin to think more in terms of like uh, the kingdoms of the world than the kingdom of God, it developed a kind of conquest mentality. Take over, we're going to win, we're going to conquer the world. Yay. And uh, that got translated into how they read the Bible and, and then how they treated the world. So in, 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 in Scripture it tells us that we're, we're to have dominion. And um, I, I think in the, in the original, it's, it's, it's telling us that we're to be to the earth and the animal kingdom what God is to us. We're his, his viceroys, his landlords down here. And God, in his relationship with us, isn't dominating us. He empowers us, and uh, he loves us. And you see that played out in Calvary, where he dies for us. Uh, we're to have a, a, a kind of a stewarding, uh, loving steward uh, uh, attitude towards the earth and the animal kingdom. But what happened beginning in the 5th century is uh, they interpreted the word dominion as to dominate. And so now the, they had this view that, that everything is out there just for our own purposes. And we can use it however we want. And so there has been, unfortunately, a, a, a strand of the church tradition that has been very callous towards the earth and the animal kingdom. And exploited and all of that. And a lot of the, the Western mindset that has done such damage to the environment and has c- continues to treat animals as though they're just pieces of meat for our consumption, um, it comes out of that. That is not based on the Bible, though. If you look at how, you know, throughout the Bible, you have this refrain going over and over again about how uh, we are called to extend God's love to the earthly animal kingdom and how God cares for uh, the, the, the animals and how they are his pets. Uh, the Bible consistently uh, uh, portrays, I mean, yeah, it's God making covenants with the, the land and covenants with animals, including them on things. And, in fact, the way that humans go, uh, in terms of our right relatedness with God or our sin, it affects the earth and the animal kingdom. It's all wrapped up together. Um, and so uh, you can't blame the Bible for the exploitation that's gone on among Christians, but you can legitimately cha- blame the church, and that's something that we at Wilderness Church really want to be about, is, is uh, showing people that we are not in line with that exploiting tradition. We're in line with the biblical tradition, and the biblical tradition is one of, of love and care and stewardship of the earth. Absolutely. I think whenever we, we turn to Scripture, we've got to remember that... Uh, we, we come with cultural lenses to, to that book. And very early on in church history, a uh, Platonic, uh, philosophy of Plato and, and other Greco-Roman philosophies had crept into the early church early on. And I think very quickly we, we began to have that lens. In a, in, in a more Platonic worldview, material stuff isn't good. Mm. It's, it's the disembodied soul that, that's good. And to this day, we find Christians who, when you ask them about what their perception of heaven is, it's largely like Plato. 
not like the Bible, where they imagine that, well, when we die, we're, we're disembodied spirits up in some ghostly world where there's fat little shoot, babies shoot arrows, with wings yeah. and harps and clouds and really boring. And, and that's not the picture of, of the, that the Bible offers of, the yeah. end, of what the final state is. It talks about a new heavens and a new earth. By which it means a renewed heavens and a renewed earth. I know other Christians who feel like, like because there's a verse in in First Peter, Second Peter three that says that fire will melt uh, all the elements of this world. So they say, well, God's going to fry the planet anyway. So what does it matter what we do with the animals, the environment? Well, wait a minute, that's apocal- Jewish apocalyptic language, which is very symbolic, and the idea of fire in in right through the scriptures is the idea of a refining fire. It, it's going, God's going to come with fire, yes, but the fire isn't to destroy. The fire is to burn out and purge all that's evil, mm-hmm. leaving that which is pristine and good and what God intended. And so we've got to be very careful the lens through which we, we read Scripture. I, I mentioned this in the last service uh, in response to a different question, but uh, a lot of folks today have this escapist view of salvation, that we're saved because we're going to escape the earth. We're going to kind of get vacuumed, clean it up, and go away someplace else. And then all this is just going to go to hell in a handbasket. Uh, but in fact, God loves the earth. He created it. It's his, it's his, it's his plan. It's, it's his creation. And he doesn't give up real estate. That's why he's fighting for it. And, and salvation isn't just for human beings. It encompasses everything. No, you know, Romans, I, I, 8. Romans 8 and Colossians 1, 18, 20, 18 through 20. It, 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 it's, it's the shalom of God, the peace of God, and the wholeness of God that's going to encompass everything and reconcile everything to God. And so our job is to manifest now as much as possible what will be true later on. So we're to manifest that shalom and that care and that love here and now. Uh, it's not a pie in the sky. When you die by and by, it's the earth right here and now. Amen. There you go. <laughs> Amen. I'm a little passionate about that one. What would you say to the parents of the two-year-old child who died in Wisconsin recently? Is there a boy in heaven? Mm. That's a, a little more challenging for me than I think for some others in that, um, in my own view, uh, you don't have to share this if you don't want, but if you want to be right, you should, um, <laughs> it, it, is that it, love has got to be chosen and... Um, um, yeah, and, and, and so if, if God could just uh, wire it into creation that people by default went to heaven um, without choosing it, then he would do that with everybody. But authentic love has got to be chosen. So the question comes out to being then, well, what about people who either because they died too young or with disabilities or, or their geographical location never heard the gospel, they never can make a choice for that. Um, and so I have to say, well, then there has to be some other means, and I believe there is, and there's even some scriptural indication of this, uh, that, that whatever's not complete in this world gets completed in the next. Um, and so I, I don't have this view that, that uh, children automatically go to heaven, or, or people who have dis- mental disabilities or, or anything of the sort. There, there's, I, I don't think they go to hell, but there's uh, another process by which God refines them, and uh, they have, have a choice to make. Um, on the other hand, I, I, I actually just recently confronted this with a, a, a woman who uh, had lost her uh, son. And um, she was looking, she understood the rationale for um, saying that people need to choose. There has to be a choice if it's going to be authentic love. On the other hand, she wanted to have some security about her child. Um, and incidentally, this idea, today we're very sentimental about Babies. Uh, the church has never taught that all kids automatically go to heaven. Uh, that's a very recent development. 
But what do you then say to a, a, a parent, like these parents in Wisconsin who just lost their child? And, and what I shared with this, this lady was just this. Look, at, if, if you are uh, concerned for your son, and you obviously are because you're a loving mother, um, how much more does God care about your son? Uh, your love, as intense and passionate as it is, is a, it's a little reflection of God's love and care for your son. And so he's in good hands. You can trust him with that. Now, we don't know uh, anything at all about the details of what goes on uh, right after death, between now and the final judgment or any of that. But if anything, I, I would think about it like this. It, it, you don't have the assurance that your son's going to choose Christ if he, if he lives here on earth. And here there's a lot of things that would be pulling him in a different direction. There, for all we, all we know for sure, is that, that he's in the presence of God. And if, if anything, that actually improves the situation. And so you can trust God to do the right thing and just relinquish him into the loving arms of Jesus. That's, that's the, security, the, the comfort, the security that I would offer. Is being a part of a jury and making a decision about someone's life judging someone? Can we serve on a jury and still not judge? Good one. I, think, I mean, there's probably two elements to this. One has to do with, you've taken us through the Love and Judgment series mm-hmm. recently, a few months ago. And so the question of, of judgment in that sense, but it also raises the question of sort of Christians in relation to the state. Yeah, and, and yeah. Which is another area you, you've, you've written on this stuff, haven't you? Not about jury duty. Well, <laughs> if you had written, what would you have said? Well, I, if I had written on that... <laughs> You could argue this in two directions. On the one hand, uh, a person could say, look, at, since I am, as a kingdom person, never to judge another. I can discern things for people I'm in relationship with, um, but if I'm not invited uh, in on someone's life, this is what we teach here at Woodland Hills Church, uh, then our only job is to agree with God that they have unsurpassable worth and not to judge them. And one could then uh, argue on that if that's the case, we shouldn't serve on juries. Because you have to make judgments about people. Um, and, and so you'd, you'd opt out uh, as a conscientious objector or something of the sort. doesn't mean that people serve on juries. It's a bad thing. It just means it's not a kingdom thing. And so your faith prevents you from doing that. Are you allowed to do that? I think you can, can't you? Out of religious... Well, you'd have to face what other consequences would be if that's your conviction. On the other hand, one could argue this way, that... Um, we are called to be good citizens in this world, and part of the citizen's duty is to serve on juries. And so as a kingdom person, I don't ever judge a, a person's uh, uh, state, their moral morality, or their relationship with God or anything of the sort. I just bless them, give them unsurpassable worth. But it doesn't preclude me doing my citizen duty of saying, I have to decide whether this person is guilty or innocent with regard to this specific crime. And you could say that a person is guilty with regard to a specific crime uh, without judging uh, anything else about them. You're just saying, here's a fact. We think you did it. Uh, and, and so in, in that case, you're not judging them, their worth or anything of the sort. You're just assessing the facts about the situation. And, um, uh, and on that basis, you're serving on the jury. And actually, when I started to answer this question, I was more in the first camp, but I've just talked myself in more in the second camp. <laughs> That's a pretty good argument. <laughs> I think I'd serve now. I don't know. 
I'm so glad that, I, I, I don't know if this is still true, but it was the case that if you have a PhD in the state of Minnesota, they don't allow you to serve on juries. Seriously? Because yeah, PhDs talk too much. <laughs> uh, they complicate everything. They are, there's always nuances. And so uh, you'll never get called for jury duty. Uh, but, so and so I'm the only one in my small group that's never been called for jury duty. <laughs> and uh, that doesn't bother me at all. <laughs> <laughs> okay. How do you decide who to give money to when people are standing on the corner with signs that they are homeless? That's so how much mean. money do you give, and how do you know if they're truly in need? Ooh, that's good. Yeah. Every day I have got to face that question. Uh, driving home, there's always two places where folks are always standing there, hungry, homeless, God bless you, give money. You know, and, and, that's all, and, and you just hope that the, the light doesn't turn red right in the corner. It's like, shoot, I didn't make it. And now you got to sit there. Do I give it? Do I stare ahead? Do I pretend like I'm busy with something? So when the light's red and you're sitting there, what, what's the calculus well, by which you figure see, this out? See, there's, there's no one answer to this question. You know, you can find verses where, you know, when I was hungry, uh, you gave me something to eat. So that could be Jesus standing there. Now here I'm not going to give any money to him, and I'll have to answer to the judgment day. But see, on the other hand, I mean, you don't know what's going to happen to that money you just give them. There are, I, I did this once in San Francisco, walking around, they had all these panhandlers, and I finally, the guy was hitting me up for some money, and I finally said this. Okay, do it, tell you what. I'll give you $5 if you'll give me five minutes. And I just want you to be totally honest. And then I asked him, tell me uh, your life. Tell me w- what you do with this money. Will you be very honest? I- I'll give you the money up front. Just be very honest. I'm kind of doing a research thing. And he told me a story where he could very well be out working and doing a lot of other things, but this is easier and it makes a lot of money. And uh, he, uh, he, about a third of it goes to uh, uh, drugs and, and, and alcohol and other things. So you could be supporting someone's drug habit by giving it to him. Uh, and for that reason, uh, I don't default to giving money. If I feel I'll be open to the Spirit leading me, and sometimes I do. I just yesterday did. Uh, but ordinarily, I don't. Because I, I don't know if I'm being a good steward of God's resources. God has to tell me to do that. On the other hand, I, I'm very intentional. My, Shelley and I are both very intentional in picking out what we give money to. That we, things we know that are trustworthy. Like Woodland Hills, for example. <laughs> and... and <laughs> Because we want to be good stewards with God's money. And so it feels better in the moment to give the money, but you may actually be doing harm. Uh, so I'd say be open to the spirit, but don't feel guilty if you don't feel led to give to someone on the street corner. Because, again, you don't know if you're supporting their drug habit. Yeah, it strikes me as this, like many questions, we go, well, it's not clear cut. Uh, a lot of it comes down to what do you sense God is saying to you in, in mm-hmm. the moment. And two, two Christians at the very same moment, might do two different things depending on what they're sensing God's saying about this. And then we come back to the, the, the judgment issue of let's and not judge each other about that, but uh, have dialogue like this and then go out and try to do what we sense God is, is calling us to do. One, uh, one alternative to this is, uh, and we actually did this for about a year and I forgot about it now, I hate when that happens. But, uh, but we, we went out and bought a bunch of McDonald's gift cards uh, or Burger King or something like that. And, or if you can get some from grocery stores and give that to people so that they have to get food with that. Um, and so if you're going to give, I, that might be a better way of doing it so that the money's not going to other purposes. Greg often refers to leading scientific theories in his sermons. 
What is Woodland Hills' theological interpretation of hyperdimensional geometry, string theory, and the multiverse view of quantum thermodynamics in the spirit realm? <laughs> Hello. Oh, that's a question. I love this church. <laughs> I love this. Well, what was the last phrase? Um, the last phrase, and the multiverse view of quantum thermodynamics in the spirit realm. Oh, there you go. Ooh. Our official position is, <laughs> this probably won't come down into our doctrinal statement, but okay, the person's wondering about this, uh, it's a lot of this uh, talk going on now, um, dealing with quantum gravity, and you know, talking about different dimensions, and, and string theory is what connects the different dimensions, and uh, the multiverse thing is uh, the view that every nanosecond there's a new universe being birthed uh, to... Well, here's, here's, what, here's what I think about it. I don't know what Paul thinks about it, and I don't think Woodland Hills has an opinion on it. But so far as I can see, and I, 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 I like to read this stuff. I, I think it's very interesting. But uh, the reason why people postulate multi-universes and multi-dimensions and then have string theory that can connect the whole thing, well, there's a number of reasons, but what's fundamental to the whole thing is they're solving certain mathematical problems that arise with the indeterminacy of quantum particles in their superposition before they're measured. Ah. <laughs> and the, the, the problem arises because they can't accept that quantum particles literally are indeterminate, that there's freedom woven into the fabric of things. And so they postulate these mathematical models. These aren't empirical realities that people have actually tested. They're, 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 they're theoretical things that they postulate to solve the problem of indeterminacy. But if you accept that, that freedom is a reality and that it could even apply to subatomic particles, there's no problem to solve, so you don't need to postulate multi-dimensions and multi-universe. You accept the evidence for what it is. It's, it's indeterminate. And that's what I think happened because that would allow for free will and, and openness and a free creation and dancing and all that kind of stuff. So I got no problem. There you go. I got no problem. You got a problem, I got a problem. It's a little more complicated than that, but that's the a, that's a short answer. That's a good answer. Um, what is your biggest struggle as a follower of Jesus? Yeah, Greg. <laughs> I can't reconcile quantum gravity with the multi-dimensions and multi-universe. That's my biggest struggle. Well, you know, I, I, I think it's good to get uh, to be vulnerable. So um, it's a good question. Um, you know, for me, it, it's, it is this. Uh, I find that I can be uh, so committed uh, and, and aware of God's presence and walking mindfully, um, and you know, I just feel like I'm submitted. Uh, for, for, I go through periods where it seems like most of the time I'm, I'm like that. I feel really, it's like just hitting on all pistons, and it's going really good. But I keep falling back into a secular kind of worldview where uh, all of a sudden you realize the days have gone by and you've hardly even thought about God. I, I just get, I get carnaled out. And I'm, I was amazed by it because I was so good last month and now I'm so bad. It, it's, and I, kept on, I keep on thinking that I'm going to, at some point, outgrow this, that I'll hit a stage where I'll be walking, you know, practicing the presence, aware of God's presence, integrating the kingdom into my day-to-day life, you know, and, and I'll, I'll hit a, a plane and I, I'll stop backsliding but I'm always surprised that I keep on backsliding. And so I find that um, I'm remarkably carnal. I, it's like, I just, of this world, the day went by, 
And uh, I started it right, was talking to God, but then I forgot about, I forget God exists. And you forget God exists, that means you're just living like an atheist. Um, in terms of your, your moment-by-moment consciousness, I was Lord of myself today. Uh, I wasn't submitting anything to God. And um, yeah, so that, that's the biggest challenge. So then I make a commitment, I go back, put reminders up, post-it notes to stay awake, and that works for a, a day or a week or a month or four but invariably, I fall back again. I'm waiting to hit that stage. Undoubtedly, you've hit that stage, that plane where you just float in God's presence nonstop. But I am not there yet. What's your struggle, Paul? Yeah, I don't really have any struggle. <laughs> Except for self-delusion. That's a pretty big one. Yeah, if you want a list of my struggles, just ask my wife. Right, right over there. But you better have about three hours if you're going to ask the question. Ooh. You know, probably, um, I guess, you know, I got plenty of struggles, and I would guess if I had to, like, what was the greatest struggle was the question. I suspect that the root of probably all my struggles, and maybe this is the case for all of us in some sense, is that, um, you know, I I spent a lot of time teaching about God's love uh, at Bethel and and here at Woodland, and, and how beautiful God is, and he looks like Jesus, and it's funny, when I sitting in my office at Bethel and, and, and I'm talking with, one-on-one with a student who's struggling to believe God loves them that much, I, I'm so convinced that God loves them that much. You know, but to be honest, for me to actually believe that, for me, um, it's an intellectual thing. I know I can say the words and I want to believe that, but so many times in so much of my life, I find that that's so almost impossible to believe that, that he could love me. I think of that song we sang this morning, the, the Father, he loves you that much. Mm. Theologically, I believe that's true. But at the times I need to believe that most, which is actually when I've just done something that I know disappoints or hasn't been under the Lordship of Jesus, that's often the time I find it the most impossible to believe, which tends to put me into a spiral of not moving back to God quickly, but actually moving further away. Like I've got to, you know, prove I'm worth him loving before I can come back. I think I've struggled with that forever. Um, and it goes right back to your fundamental picture of God um, that really doesn't look like Jesus. I, I still struggle with this picture of God that I got in my head as a kid of this old man up in the sky, long white beard, and these disappointed eyes. That uh, mm-hmm. you know, It's not my dad or my grandpa or anything. I don't know how I got it there, but... Um, it looks suspiciously like the God on Michelangelo's Sistine Chapel, come to think of it. <laughs> but, but whatever it is, it's like that, that picture has become my reality so often at the worst times, as opposed to the, to the beauty of Jesus Christ. And when you think about it, in the garden, the very, the very first lie was, did God really say, right. and it, it's a slam against God's character, against his goodness of what the enemy did. So yeah, that's, that's been my biggest struggle, is to believe God is as good as Jesus revealed him to be, which means lack of faith. And that's the most fundamental thing in the Christian life, is trusting God. And uh, that's a struggle. That's honest. That's honest. Proving that Paul's not perfect. (laughs) (laughs) Where I thought he he was. I know. I I thought Paul was perfect. (laughs) Well, I want to thank all of you guys for your participation. I think we might have time for one more question real quick. But tons of questions came in. They were super good. And I just want to thank you guys for your participation and your engagement in this process. We love that. Mm -hmm. I want to thank Paul and Greg for both their intellect and their vulnerability. It was great. Um, so here is your last question. Oh, and just to remind you, all these are going to be posted online. So um, definitely check out the other sermons. Your last question. 
What distinguishes Christian morality from secular morality? Is faith in Jesus needed to be a moral person? Mm-hmm. I, I don't think faith in Jesus is necessary to be a, a moral person. There's plenty of uh, uh, very moral atheists out there or uh, non-Christians. They, whatever they believe, they don't believe in Christ, but they're very moral. So they, you know, we're made in the image of God, and uh, I, I think our, our, our moral wiring is, is from God. And it's people who are in touch with that are going to live moral lives. They may have a worldview that doesn't make sense out of that. I don't think atheists do. I don't think you can ground morality in anything if there's no personal being out there who's, who's moral and who created all this. But they can still be moral nonetheless. And uh, I'm thankful for people being good people, regardless of what their, 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 their belief system is. Um, what's, what I think is distinctive is, I mean, one thing, the, the, the ethic that Jesus calls us to goes way beyond morality. Morality is sort of what's right and wrong and good in society or whatever. Um, the call of Jesus is not to be a good moral person. Uh, the call of Jesus is to die to yourself and to then imitate the love of God that's revealed on the cross. Uh, live in love as Christ loved you and gave his life for you. And every other thing that we might call Christian ethics comes out of that. But the center of it is dying to self in order to ascribe worth to others. Uh, and, and that's distinctive. Uh, it goes way beyond just cat- social categories of, of right and wrong. So everybody can, I think, do that. Um, but the unique call of the Christian is to imitate Jesus in dying for to, to self. Amen. All right. All right. I, I love a fact a, a community where we can do this, where we can ask questions and wrestle with stuff out loud, and um, you know, just take take out whatever's on people's minds. I know a lot of us. And I'm talking to pod listeners too. Come out of environments where that wasn't the case. You know, if. You get uh, some, unfortunately, a lot of religious environments are, you've got some insecure leader or leaders at the top, and so their view is the view that everyone's got to agree with, and the way that's enforced is by ruling out any kind of dissension, any kind of disagreement, any kind of differences of opinion, and any kind of questions. You know, you get shamed if you ask a question or call a name or, or ostracized. Uh, but, but we here think that God gave us a brain for a reason, uh, and he wants us to use it. I think it's an act of worship when you ask questions, uh, because we're worshiping with all of our mind, and he wants that. He doesn't just call us to blindly believe stuff. He calls us to, to authentically believe stuff, and that means it's got to be okay to ask questions. So, so thanks for the questions. Yeah. I'd like to ask the prayer teams to come up here, and if you're here uh, this morning and have any need whatsoever, however big or however small it might be, uh, I encourage you to pray with these folks. Um, there's power in prayer, like we've been talking about the last couple of weeks. Power in prayer. And don't carry that burden out uh, alone. All right. Paul, would you like to close this prayer? Absolutely. Father God, thank you for this time together. Thank you for this community. Thank you for our minds, mm-hmm. Lord God. And thank you for the fact that when you call us to come into relationship to you, you don't ask us to check our minds at the Amen. door. Amen. That faith isn't blind faith, but it's, it's trust in all of the evidences you've given us to show that you are trustworthy, Lord God. Thank you for that. Help us, Amen. Lord, to love you with all of our heart, all of our strength, and all of our mind here as a community of Woodland Hills. I ask you to bless my brothers and sisters as they go yes. forth. Bless us all, God, as we go into this world. Help us to manifest your love. Let it pour through us and to others and build your kingdom in our midst, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 God bless you guys. Love you. Go out and love on the world.